Hello there, boys and girls. Welcome to Main Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today, we're breaking down the full card for UFC 275. Glover Teixeira versus Yuri Prezhashka coming up this Saturday, 11th of June, with a 6 p.m. Eastern start time. This event's being held in Singapore, far away from the States, with 12 total bouts, and we've got two belts on the line. In the main event, you got Glover Teixeira defending his belt against Yuri Prezhashka. In the co-main event, you got Valentina Shevchenko defending her belt against Talas Santos. A lot of good fights in this card. We'll go over each fight, one fight at a time, discuss the background of the fighters, tell you who we'd like to win, and also discuss some of the prop bets. Let's jump into it right now. Here we go. The first fight in the prelim card should be a women's bout in the featherweight division at 145 pounds between Jocelyn Edwards, who goes by La Pantera, who hails from Panama, and Ramona Pasquale from Hong Kong. Pasquale 6-3 overall, 4-1 her last five fights. A slight dog here, plus 150 in the money line. She's 33 years old, 5'7", high with a 66-inch reach. She trains in Las Vegas out of Syndicate MMA. As for Jocelyn Edwards, she's 10-4 overall, 2-3 in her last five fights. A slight favor here at minus 170 on the money line. She's 26 years old, 5'8", high with a 70-inch reach. She trains out of King's MMA. So both fighters are coming out of very good gyms. Now looking at the votes in topology, Edwards is getting most of the votes at 71% to be exact and only 29% coming in for Pasquale. At first glance, I get it. I understand the love for Edwards. She's the better striker, very athletic. Pasquale looked very underwhelming in her last fight, though I can argue that she did a pretty good job considering the circumstances and who she was fighting. So there's some recency bias here. Anyway, as we break down this film, I'm going to try to convince you that uh, you want to give a look here to Pasquale as a slight dog. I think it's the perfect setup for her to win the fight. I'll try to give you some examples of that as we go through this breakdown. Let's take a glance at the striking numbers first. Ramona Pasquale landing 3.47 per minute, absorbing 6.53. Granted, that was one fight. That was just a Nunes fight. And obviously, Nunes is a very good striker. But what it shows you is her stand-up defense is not great. If this fight were to play out on the feet, you got Edwards landing 3.47 per minute, absorbing 2.96. Clearly the better striker. And if you watch film, she's the better technical striker. Ramona Pasquale is a bit of a brawler. A lot of heart, yes, but does not throw straight strikes. Everything's kind of looping. Now, in the clinch, the knees are nice. The elbows are nice. But at full distance, boxing distance, Jocelyn Edwards is the better striker. Now, they're both landing the same amount of volume, but again, the stand-up defense is much better for Edwards than it is for Ramona Pasquale. Now, for takedown offense, Ramona Pasquale's landing three takedowns per 15 minutes. Again, this is one fight. She took down Nunes in every one of those rounds. The only thing she couldn't do was do it early enough in the round. She would get pieced up early in the round, 30 seconds to go in the round, a minute to go in the round, she would get a takedown, and she kept top control on the smaller Nunes. Jocelyn Edwards is the smaller fighter. She's been fighting at 135 pounds now in her last three or four fights. So she's moving up here 10 pounds to fight at 145 pounds against a bigger fighter who has good top control when she gets on top of you in the bottom and displayed that in her last fight against a smaller Nunez. If you've watched some prior fights with Jocelyn Edwards, wrestling is her Achilles heel. She lands 0.33 takedowns per fight, so she's not doing much taking down and she defends at a 47% rate. As for Ramona, she's averaging three takedowns per 15 minutes, as we talked about, and she has 0% takedown defense on the UFC website because she's never had to actually defend a takedown. That's why it's 0%. Let's first talk about Jocelyn Edwards. She's from Panama, started boxing at the age of 13 years old. She transitioned to mixed martial arts at the age of 17. She's got a purple belt in BJJ, former KOTC Bantamweight champion. She signed to the UFC last year. She has a one and two overall record in the UFC. Her last fight was against Jessica Rose Clark, 2021 decision loss. She was a plus 135 underdog. Clark is 11 and seven overall, mind you. She's two and three in her last five fights. Clark's most two recent wins were against Sarah Alpar and Jaws and Edwards, very low level UFC level fighters. And Edwards gets dominated in this fight on the ground. Very simply, Clark takes her down several times every single round when she's not taking her down she pins her up against the fence when they're out in the open you see moments where Jocelyn Edwards is the better striker she's got good range and Clark's not an amazing boxer but Clark follows the perfect game plan 
takes her down, keeps her down, makes it ugly, wins an easy decision. Now, Jessica Rose Clark is a cute girl. She's got that bad girl look, the tattoos and everything, and I like her. She's a pretty good fighter, but she dominated Jocelyn Edwards right here. And she did it how? With wrestling. Her prior fight, she fought Carol Rosa, 2021 decision loss. Surprisingly, she came in as a plus 170 underdog. That was probably her best opponent to date. Carol Rosa's a pretty good fighter. Just lost recently, but still a very good fighter. She's 15 and 4 overall, 4 1 of the UFC. The fight starts, and it's like not even 10 seconds go by. And what does Rosa do? She takes down Jocelyn Edwards and then takes her down every single round of the fight and dominates her, takes position control. And Rosa did sustain some damage. I will give that to Edwards. Edwards did do a little damage to Rosa. Rosa was bleeding, had like a, a cut lip or something like that. But in terms of the actual fight, Rosa dominated. And how does she do it again? With the ground and pound, with the wrestling approach, taking down Edwards. Edwards is a very good athlete. She's obviously in the UFC, high-level athlete. And she looks like she's athletic enough to defend takedowns. But she can't defend takedowns, and she can't defend clinch control. If you back her up against the fence, she has a hard time getting out of that situation as well. Now, some things I do like about Edwards, she's a good striker. She mixes in leg kicks and body kicks. She's got a very nice front kick. She has a great physique and very athletic. And she's also displayed some finishing ability. She's got three finishes in her last four wins, though she does not have a finish yet in the UFC. Now, my concerns for Edwards, she's coming to this fight on a two-fight losing streak. Her takedown defense, as we talked about, not very good, 47%. And last fight, for example, she got taken down three times. If the other girl had let her up, she would have taken her back down again, and she would have more takedowns taken. It was only three takedowns because she got taken down three total times and didn't get back up. And as we mentioned before, once she gets taken down, stand-up offense is not there. She cannot get back up. She tries to move around, but anybody who's either bigger, in this case, Pascal will be bigger, or a good grappler who has good top control can take advantage of her on the ground. So we've painted the picture about her that she's not much of a wrestler, not much of a grappler. You would then assume that her striking is better. Now, I've talked about the technique of the striking. It is good. It is better than her partner in this fight, Ramona Pasquale. But the volume isn't great. And so I'm going to draw an example for you. She's landing 3.47 strikes per minute. Not the lowest volume in the world, but it's middling. It's average. And again, for women's division, 145 pounds, should be a little more volume, especially if you're one-dimensional. I'm going to compare her to Caitlin Chukagan. Caitlin Chukagan is a, more of a stand-up striker, karate style. She's got some jiu-jitsu skills, yes, but most of her game on the feet. She lands 4.56 per minute compared to 3.47 for Edwards. In terms of the ground game, again, Chukagan averages 0.28 takedowns per fight, comparable to Edwards here who averages 0.33 takedowns per fight. My point here is that if you're going to be a one-dimensional fighter, there needs to be more volume. What ends up happening to her is she gets taken down, spends minutes on and on her back, and so her striking numbers are also affected by this. We mentioned before the size difference. Her prior fights were at 135 pounds. This will be the first time for Edwards moving up 10 pounds against a fighter who I'm sure is cutting weight. If you looked at Ramona Pasquale, she's a thick lady, okay? Not fat, just thick. She's a meaty girl. She works at a very good gym at Syndicate. She'll cut the weight. She'll come down to 145. You've got Edwards, who's more of a leaner, muscly type of fighter coming up here in weight. It's the recipe for success for Ramona Pasquale. I feel as if almost the UFC wants her to win the fight. Now, put everything in context. This fight's being held in Singapore, right? So an Asian sort of fan base. You've got Ramona Pasquale, an Asian fighter from Hong Kong. Okay, I'm not saying they're all the same people, but the point is, you know, the fan base there, it's closer to China. Fighting a person who cannot defend takedowns and can't get back up. And that's what Ramona Pasquale does. If Ramona Pasquale's coaches at Syndicate, which are pretty world-class coaches, have prepared her for this fight, it's pretty simple. They're taking down Edwards in two of the three rounds, if not every single round. The UFC is giving her the perfect opponent here. Edwards is a good fighter. If she can defend takedowns, keep it in the feet, she has a chance. Romana Pasquale is a very sloppy striker. She leaves opportunities for her opponent to hit her, put it that way. So this to me seems like the perfect setup. The UFC wants Ramona Pasquale to stick around like they do with all the Asian fighters. There's a huge market out there. It makes perfect business sense. If she cannot beat Edwards, I don't know how else she gets wins in the UFC. This is the perfect fight for her. And when the fight gets to the ground, she is the bigger girl. Watch the prior film of her. You'll see she's a very big fighter. The weight alone will be a significant advantage for her. 
Now, looking at the fighter profile for Ramona Pasquale, she signed to the UFC earlier this year. She went pro 2016. Early on, she fought mostly the regional scene in the Far East, like Hong Kong, China. She did fight one fight in Victa, went 1-0. That was right before the UFC. She moved from Shanghai UFC Performance Institute, which is the UFC center over there in Shanghai, picked up and moved over to Syndicate MMA. The reason being was she found it hard to get opponents so far away from all the action in the Far East, and she wanted to get better world-class UFC-level training partners. It's an indication of how committed she is to what she's doing, to pick up and move halfway around the world, go to Syndicate MMA. She's now based in Vegas. A lot of the fights are in Vegas. Ironically enough, now she's going all the way to Singapore to fight this fight instead of doing like a Vegas uh, UFC fight night. Nonetheless, she's already displayed she has the commitment to make this happen. She's putting all of her eggs in one basket and wants to be a good UFC fighter. She went pro 2016. She fought an Invicta, Icon, and WLF prior to the UFC. Her last fight was against Josiana Nunez. This year, she was a plus 200 underdog. She displayed a ton of toughness in that fight. She got beat up, had a nice big shiner. She got knocked down multiple times. Round two alone, let me get in my soapbox for a second. If you watch UFC Vegas 56, which just happened, Jarzino Rosenstrike in the main event versus Volkov, and all the chatter after the fight about was it fair, not fair, the decision. I mean, the referee stepping in and saying, hey, no mas, and in the fight maybe too soon for some people. Others were arguing like, oh, man, he was clearly hurt. It's no big deal. Other people were pointing out who the referee was. Watch this fight. Two women, 145 pounds. In round two, Ramona Pasquale not only gets knocked down, she doesn't get knocked down like bent her knees. She gets knocked all the way down, falls to her knees, pops back up, takes a few more hard shots, then does the lean away like Rosenstrike did, and then keeps taking shots, then kind of turns back around to her opponent, gets taken down. Now the person is on top of her, mounting her, and beating her up, hitting her sides of the back of the head. It went much further and much longer than what they did in the main event of a heavyweight fight. So I just want to put that out there, guys. I'm not saying that the fight with Rosenstrike and Volkov was stopped too early. I'm not getting into that argument. I'm going to just say this. When they stop fights, the standards, they change all the time. It's one of the most inconsistent sports you could ever imagine. Imagine like an NBA referee coming to a game and being like, well, you know, tonight, I'm just not going to call certain types of fouls. Like, I'm only going to call like really aggressive fouls. If the guy like hits him a little on the arm, nah, no foul. And then the next fight comes, a whole different referee crew. And they're like, you know what? We're going to call every single little thing. If you just touch the guy, we're going to call a foul. I don't know what the MMA world can do about this. I don't know what referees in general could do about it. When I watched the film on this fight, doing the film study, I watched the second round and the first thing they thought to me was the Volkov fight. I'm like, wait a second. This referee is letting these two girls go at it. The girl was more hurt looking than Rosenstrike was. That was round one of a heavyweight fight between two big grown ass men. And yet here we have a fight, a UFC fight between two ladies. They let it go on much more than that. So I just wish we could have some more consistency in the officiating. There are some fights we can talk about that have maybe gone too long and maybe should have been stopped, like the Ortega fight versus Volkanovski last year. That was maybe gone too far. Anyway, back to this fight here. She does get a takedown in every single round on Nunez. The only problem was she didn't get takedowns early enough in the round. So like three minutes will go by, four minutes will go by. She'll get pieced up, get knocked down like in round two, and then get a takedown. And she was so much bigger than Josiana Nunez. Now, Nunez is a smaller fighter in general. She was fighting up in weight. She hurt Romano Pasquale several times in the fight. But the top game on the ground, you saw Pasquale in her home environment. She just couldn't get that done sooner. And so she lost every single round of that fight. Now, her prior fights, we watched one more. It was a kickboxing bout like 2018 against a very weak opponent. 
I wouldn't waste time looking at any prior film. It's all very low level film against very low level opponents. The Josiana Nunez was the most recent film and shows you the most you're going to get from doing film study on Ramona Pasquale. So we don't have a deep library on her. We don't know a lot about her. And she's getting a bit of a late start in her career for mixed martial arts. She is 33 years old. Giles and Edwards is only 26. We should see more improvements from Giles and Edwards just based upon where she's at with her career and her age compared to Ramona Pasquale. All that said, Pasquale has made big changes recently, has gone to a good camp, is around a good environment and displayed a hell of a chin and a lot of heart against Nunez. She took a fucking beating and she asked for it at times. She was actually telling Nunez, hey, come on, let's bring it on. So she got some balls, this girl. Now, the things to like about Ramona Pasquale, number one, she's got a chin, a lot of heart, as we just talked about. Very good wrestling ability. She has pretty good finishing ability. Now, granted, it's against lower level opponents, but her last remix martial arts wins were all via some level of finish via the KO or TKO. Now, she hasn't had any finishes yet in the UFC. Not sure if that finishing power will translate over to UFC level athletes. We'll see. Now, my concerns for Ramona Pasquale. Number one, her striking, it's not very technical. It's more looping. It's not very technically sound, put it that way. Her head movement or lack thereof, there is no head movement. It's just her head still the entire time. Even when she was getting punched by Nunez in that fight and sort of like walking away or trying to like, you know, skirt away from the action against the fence, there was no head movement. It's like a hit on the side of the head and just kind of like kept floating away. So she doesn't have good boxing technique. Now that should be getting better again at a good gym, but her instinctual boxing skills are just like put your hands out, try to block things and keep your head still. She lost to Janae Harding in 2017 via a round two ground and pound. Harding is one in four in her last five fights and uh, she lost her 2017 be a round two ground and pound. I recall doing her breakdown when she fought Nunez. And one of my big question marks with her was she has not fought good competition. All of her fights prior to the UFC were just very low level. Now the UFC needs more female fighters. I get it. And she had one win in Invicta and she's Asian and she's a bigger girl. They need more girls of this weight class. I get all of that. But maybe like in 15 years from now as mixed martial arts and the whole branding of UFC travels around every edge of the globe and we have more fighters, we're going to have so many higher quality fighters. And I'm not trying to knock on Ramona Pasquale. She's going to be part of that, what, second generation of UFC female fighters. We've had the first generation just now retiring and finishing up the likes of like Roxanne Mataferi. This is like 2.0, right? 2.0 or 2.0 and a half of the women fighters in mixed martial arts. And so she's part of that generation. Mad respect to these ladies. But the reality is she's only in the UFC right now because of lack of competition, because they need more Asian fighters and because they have so many damn events. They need to fill the roster, right? The fights we watched every night on this film, we watched Pasquale versus Nunez from this year. Pasquale in a kickboxing bout, 2018. If you want to watch that, the film link is down below in the description. It's against a female who's much smaller than her and she needs the shit of her like early on in round one. It's a kickboxing bout, remember? And they just said, that's it. It showed good knees in the clinch. He's good at that. But it was like a very small girl, not the same weight class. Another fight we watched, Edwards versus Rosa, 2021, and Edwards versus Clark, 2021. If you want to watch any one of those four fights, we put four links down below in the description. Okay, my final thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, have to give an edge to Edwards. She has fought more UFC fights. Granted, she doesn't have an amazing record, but still has more experience against higher-level opponents. For Rowan Pasquale, at 33 years old, very late start in her career, 6-3 overall record, 0-1 in the UFC. She has a lot of work to do in a short period of time. I do give it to her, though. This will be her second fight in 2022, so she's wasting no time. As for fighter IQ, I don't love the way that Jonathan Edwards does not defend takedowns, okay? She's been taken down in six consecutive rounds. Her last two fights, back-to-back -back fights, got taken down in every single damn round. And when she gets taken down, she can't get back up. At this point in her career, I know she's only 26, she's 14 fights in mixed martial arts, she's got to address her stand-up game, her grappling. I look at this as two things. One, yes, she's bad at grappling and wrestling, but two, it's becoming a fighter IQ issue. She's not doing anything about it to change it, and she needs to or else she's going to lose her UFC contract. As for Ramona Pasquale, her fighter IQ, 
yeah, I think that's still developing as well. Did not love the way that she did not move her head at all in the fight against Nunez. Every time she tried to stand and box with her, it made no sense. Now, post-fight, you know, hindsight's 20-20, but now looking at that fight, why didn't she get takedowns earlier? She went like three for three for takedowns. Only tried three, but all three were attempted after she got her butt kicked earlier in each of those rounds. So fighter IQ, I need to see improvements from both fighters. Both seem to have pretty good cardio, no question marks there. They both have multiple finishes recently in the last few wins, but no finishes in the UFC. Could one of them finish each other here? I think it's a very even match. I think Giles and Edwards is durable enough and athletic enough to get out of here. I think Pasquale, same thing, showed a lot against Nunez. So maybe we do go to decision like a typical women's fight, but they do have some finishing ability. As for striking, big advantage for Giles and Edwards. Now in the clinch, I will acknowledge Ramona Pasquale, excellent knees, some good elbows, decent dirty boxing, but just standard striking, kicking, punching, a big advantage for Edwards in that department. As for grappling, huge advantage for Ramona Pasquale. Now, when I say grappling, I mean more like the wrestling takedown top control. Not so much about submission, because when Ramona Pasquale took down Nunez in the last fight, couldn't do much with it, okay? So I see her taking down Edwards, doing a lot of work on the ground, moving positions, maybe getting a few good strikes, but ultimately not getting a submission. So the groundwork for me, when I say the advantages for Pasquale, I mean the wrestling and takedown department. And last but not least, who has more heart? Who's got more passion? I don't like the way Jocelyn Edwards, again, does not like fight for her life. It allows people to take her down. Watch the Clark fight, her last fight. Like going into round three, are you gonna defend a takedown? Are you gonna like fight and do whatever it takes, scratch and claw, defend the takedown? No, I guess taken down, like it's no big deal. So I question her heart, how much she wants it. As for Pasquale, picking up, moving around halfway around the world, going and fighting Nunez in her last fight, getting beat up every which way, got to a point where the fight maybe should have been stopped. I guess it would have been stopped if it was the Volkov fight. Anyway, the point is, showed a ton of heart in that fight. She's a rookie in many ways of the game. Her second UFC fight, 33 years old, it's now or never. She's putting all her eggs into this basket right here. I feel like Pasquale has already demonstrated to us. She's got the heart, the cojones. If the fight gets close, I can see Pasquale doing what it takes to win. So for example, let's say Jocelyn Edwards tags her in round two or tags her in round one, and we go one, one going into round three. I guarantee you Pasquale comes out there and gives it her all and will do whatever it takes to win. I'm not so sure about Edwards. The props I like for this fight, the fight goes a distance, it's minus 200. To win by decision for Pasquale is plus 300. I love that prop. I like her to win out right on the money line at plus 150, but at plus 300 is most likely by decision, most likely through ground control. You've got Edwards at plus 150 by decision. Now, one more prop I haven't seen the numbers on yet would be a split decision win. I could definitely see that. Now, imagine a scenario, paint a picture for you. This fight's being held in Singapore, Asian fan base, all jacked up. They got their girl in here, Pasquale. It gets to a squeaky close round three, and we get to a split decision. I would look at that prop when it comes out. I don't have a number on it yet, but back again to the one I like the most. The fight goes to distance is minus 200, and my second most favorite prop for the fight would be the fight being won by decision by Ramona Pasquale at plus 300. I'm starting to card off with a dog pick here. I like Ramona Pasquale. She's plus 150 in the money line. I hope my breakdown persuaded you to also consider Pasquale, and if it didn't persuade you and you still like Edwards, Give me some feedback. Let me know where we went wrong here. Am I underestimating Edwards' athletic ability and her striking? Am I overestimating Ramona Pasquale's heart and her passion to win because of the way she got her ass beat up against Nunes? Is this fight too close from the last fight? A lot of reasons why you could like Jocelyn Edwards. I just feel like this is a good setup fight for Ramona Pasquale. I think she gets her first win here in the UFC. That's the breakdown, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe, and we're on to the next video. Deuces.
Okay, which should be the second fight in the prelim card. It's going to be a strawweight bout at 115 pounds between two female fighters. We've got Silvana Gomez Juarez from Argentina and Naliang who hails from China. Naliang goes by Dragon Girl. She's 19 and 5 overall, 4 1 her last five fights. A slight dog here at plus 135 on the money line. She's 25 years old in 10 months, so about to be 26. 5 foot 5 in height with a 67 inch reach. She trains at a Vlongian MMA gym. As for Silvana Gomez, who goes by La Malvada, she's 10 and 4 overall, 3 and 2 in her last five fights. A slight favor here at minus 155 on the money line. She again hails from Argentina, 37 years old, 5 foot 3 in height with a 63 inch reach. She trains at an interim gym in Mexico, which is a very good gym with a lot of good female athletes. As for the numbers on topology, it appears that Liang is the favorite, getting 72% of the votes, only 28% coming in for Juarez. I would have thought it would have been closer. There is some recency bias because of the way Juarez lost both of her last two fights in round one, uh, which we'll talk about some of those fights. But I do like Liang to win the fight. So I agree with the public votes here. I like Liang to win the fight. I don't love it. I'm not going to throw a mortgage payment on this bet, but I do like Liang and specifically by submission, which I'll try to convince you that that's maybe the best prop to look at in this matchup. I'm looking at the fighting stats in these two fighters first. For Liang, she's landing 2.94 per minute, absorbing 3.71, so has a negative striking ratio. That's never a good thing. As for Gomez, landing 1.95, absorbing 2.26. So both girls lack striking defense and don't have the best output. Now for takedown offense, Liang Na is averaging 6.96 takedowns per 15 minutes. So an active wrestler, grappler, that's how she wants to fight. As for Gomez, averaging zero takedowns in her first two UFC fights and has a 16% takedown defense, 0% takedown defense for Liang Na, who's only fought one UFC fight. With the way she fights, she's not trying to defend takedowns. She wants to go to the ground, likes to work from her back. Now looking at the fighter profile for Savannah Gomez. No amateur record. She went pro 2010. She signed to the UFC 2021. She's currently 0-2 in the UFC, so she's still looking for her first UFC win. She fought in Lux Fight League, KSW, XFC, and Combate part of the UFC. Her last fight was against Vanessa Demopoulos, 2022, so she fought earlier this year. She lost via an arm bar in round one. She was a plus 120 underdog. She knocked down Vanessa very clear with a very hard overhand right connected perfectly. She jumps on top of Vanessa, gets some good ground and pound strikes. The referee comes in to side of, you know, sort of observe, thinking about maybe stopping the fight, lets it go. Juarez gets sloppy with her arm position and allows Vanessa Demopoulos to get a nice arm bar. By the way, the arm bar was really nasty. Watching it on the replay, Juarez's arms are either very flexible or maybe she got injured because her arm was very hyper extended. Like her elbow was completely bent back the wrong way. Nonetheless, round one loss as a plus 120 underdog. You expect most women's fights to go the distance. Not in that case. Her prior fight against Godinez, who's looking very good these days. And guess what happened? Armbar round one loss. So back-to-back -back losses in round one via armbar. Clearly her submission defense is not her strong suit. She's a plus 250 underdog in that fight against Godinez. She came to the fight on a three-fight winning streak, so she had a winning streak going before she ran into Godinez. And that fight was not even close to being competitive. Godinez came out, backed her up against the fence, took her down with ease, got into a back position, then from there moved easily into an armbar position, and Godinez forced her to tap very quickly. It was not even close. Now, Godinez is a good fighter. Now, she's had some moments, young fighter, but the reality is Juarez is not anywhere near the level of Godinez. Now, she also fought Ariana Lipsky and Vanessa Mello prior to the UFC. She fought Lipsky 2018, lost to her in KSW. Lipsky, of course, is currently in the UFC, and she beat Vanessa Mello eight years ago, 2014, by decision. Now, Mello is no longer in the UFC, but she was a UFC fighter, and she's currently in PFL. Now, the things I do like about Juarez, solid finishing ability. Granted, it is outside the UFC, but she's finished three of her last four wins, all of those via TKO. She's fought some pretty good fighters over the course of her career. We talked about it. Both in and out of the UFC, she's fought some good opponents. Her striking is very good, and she throws good combinations. She has power, too, especially in that right hand. She knocked down Vanessa Demopoulos and has decent finishing ability overall. Six of her ten wins are by finish. Now, granted, none of those are in the UFC yet, but she has that killer instinct. 
Now, some of my concerns for Juarez. She's 37, turning 38 this year, so age is not on her side. I don't think it's a big factor. She tends to fight in a very athletic fighting style. She doesn't look like old or fatigued. Hasn't been in a lot of wars. Only 14 total mixed martial arts fights in her career. So from that standpoint, is it a factor? I don't think so. But she's not in her prime age, put it that way. She's also not a very active fighter. At 38 years old, okay, you're getting to a point now where you're at your twilight years. You're going to be expiring soon. She has 14 total mixed martial arts fights over a 12-year period. On the flip side, this is her second fight of 2022, so maybe she's changing course now and getting more active, but the point is she's had several two-year breaks throughout her career, had a long time between fights, not sure why, but just some question marks there. She got poor grappling skills and poor submission defense. We talked about it. She lost her last two fights via round one arm bars. Of her four total losses, she was finishing three of them. And again, to remind everyone, this is women's MMA where we don't usually see a lot of finishes, but she has been finishing three of her four losses. She does not defend takedowns or sweeps very well and doesn't pose any kind of a grappling threat to her opponent, which makes her very one-dimensional. 16% takedown defense is what she's averaging right on the UFC. Doesn't have a single takedown herself. So when it comes to grappling and wrestling, that's just not her game. It has to be stand-up. And obviously the last two opponents she fought against, Godinez and Vanessa Demol they're more grapplers and that's why she was so overmatched she had no chance in those fights now keep in mind Liang Na that's what she hangs her hat on she's a grappler that's what she does submission that's what she focuses on it feels like to me the UFC is giving a layup here to Liang Na it's being held in Singapore Asian fan base Liang Na being of Asian descent likes to chase submissions not a very good striker you got Juarez coming in here back-to-back -back submission losses in round one via armbar which is one of the favorite submission attempts by Liang Na now speaking of Na Liang her parents enrolled her when she was very young into mixed martial arts to help her get out her energy she was kind of getting into trouble in school and just a very high energy kid she's the first Chinese woman to ever sign with the UFC she got signed to the UFC via the UFC Academy combine from the UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai China she's 0-1 in the UFC looking for her first UFC win her most notable opponents her last fight she fought Ariana Carnalosi in her UFC debut lost via round two round and pound there was some highs there was some lows and then there was some really low lows in that fight she came in as a plus 185 underdog she got beat up in round one now round one is okay for most of the round that last 45 seconds or so it's on the verge of getting stopped she's on the ground getting her butt punished we're gonna come back to that because it's a common theme in her losses where she's on the ground on her back getting beat up round two starts now i got carnalosi getting the fight to the ground a little quicker though it was i will say liang na who gets a takedown initially but carnalosi reverses position gets on top and beats the hell out of na and eventually the referee stops the fight it was a clear good stoppage she was getting beat up taking way too many punches on her back where she likes to work from her prior fight i want to talk about 2018 yes four years ago but against maria agapova a name we recognize from the ufc she lost via round one tko the film link's available for that fight it's not the best quality film it's like somebody with a handheld camera outside the cage but nonetheless you see the overall fight she gets grinded up on the ground loses almost the same exact way that she lost to ariana Carlosi. 2018 maria agapova four years ago agapova who's like still developing herself who's still a very raw fighter who still doesn't have a very good ground game she got on top of na because na was chasing an arm bar she was working for this arm bar the entire first round looking for it and she had some moments where it was close she's the ultimate example of someone who will give up position to chase an arm bar when you don't get it now you're on the ground on your back you're taking punches the maria agapova fight from four years ago that tko loss looked just like the carnalosi loss which tells me what it tells me she hasn't changed much since then it tells me she's still chasing those submissions it tells me she has not learned her lesson now good for her the ufc is setting her up here with an opponent who cannot defend arm bars and can't work on the ground now the things i do like about liang now she's got very good offensive wrestling 
6.96 takedowns per fight. Now that's granted only one fight is the sample size, but still a very good wrestler. She went after Carnalossi. She did get her down a few times. She was okay on the ground again until she started chasing submissions and got beat up. And she's also a very active BJJ practitioner. So when she's on her back, maybe she's in top position, wherever she's at on the ground, she's looking for submissions. She's changing positions. She's transitioning. She doesn't just lay and pray. She's actually on the ground looking for a finish. And when you look at Liang Na's tapology, guess how she won her last two fights? Round one, armbar. You have to put a bet here on Liang Na to win this fight via round one armbar. Take that specific prop and just put whatever, 15, 20 bucks on it and forget it. If the fight ends in round one via armbar, you're going to look back if you didn't bet it and say, what the fuck was I thinking? Because here you have a fighter who's won her last two fights by armbar in round one against a fighter who's lost her last two fights via armbar in round one. The UFC could not give Liang Na a better situation here. They're handing her on a platter an opportunity to get a fight. And not that age is a big factor in this fight, but Liang Na is the much younger fighter. She is making more improvements. Maybe she comes out here and shows some of those improvements in this fight, whereas her opponent's about 37 years old. So she has an age advantage. I'm not sure again how that plays out. I think Juarez looks good for her age. Now my concerns for Liang Na, she has a negative striking ratio. Now mostly because again, on the ground, she's getting hit while chasing submissions. Now on the feet, a little better, probably not as bad of a ratio on the feet when it comes to striking. Nonetheless, has to shore up her striking defense and make it a priority to block those punches and not just eating punches, especially on the ground when she's trying to chase submissions. She chases submissions to a fault. We've talked about it. She has to be more disciplined about keeping position and not eating punches when she doesn't have to. If a submission's there, great, go for it. But when it's not there, you have to know when to say when and back off. She's had a hard time with that in the past. And lastly, she's a very one-dimensional fighter. She cannot win the fight in the feet. It has to be on the ground, and it has to be by submission. So I don't see her winning a ground attack game where she's got position control. Nah, not on the feet against a good striker like Juarez. It's going to have to be by submission, which is why I like that prop again. I don't think that Liana wins the fight any other way but by submission. Unless we go to the scorecards, hometown crowd over in the Far East, and they just screw Juarez, anything's possible. But I feel like her path to victory has to be via submission. The fights we watched every now and then, we watched Na versus Agapova, 2018, Na versus Conorosi from last year, Juarez versus Godinez, and Juarez versus Demopolis from earlier this year. If you want to watch any one of those four fights, we've provided four links down below in the description as part of our free video library. Okay, my final thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, about the same. Now, you look at the topology, you say to yourself, Liang Na has 24 total fights compared to only 14 for Savannah Gomez-Juarez. I get it. But Juarez, as we talked about, has fought definitely the better competition, both in and out of the UFC. So from an experience standpoint, I'm going to say they're about equal, though I guess if I got really particular, I think Juarez has a slight advantage, especially competitive-wise. For fighter IQ, mm, I have questions about both fighters. I don't love the way Liang chases submissions to a fault. I don't love the way Juarez cannot do anything on the ground and can't defend arm bars. So from a fighter IQ standpoint, they have some growth to do. And at 37 years old, Juarez not going to be changing very much. In terms of cardio, both fighters have demonstrated good cardio in the past. No, no question marks there. Could there be a finish in this fight? Yeah. And we've talked about it. There's an arm bar waiting to happen in round one by Liang Na if she could get in the right situation. As for striking, I give a big advantage to Juarez. And it's for several reasons, but the most important one is because Na Liang in the past is willing to take punches while chasing submissions. She's got to change that habit. Again, if she has a submission going, go get it. But if it's not there, you got to protect yourself. In the past, it's been a problem. Now, even on the feet though, Juarez has a big technical advantage and she has strong power in her hands as we saw against Demopolis when she knocked her down in round one. As for grappling, I give an edge to Na Liang. The the key for her will be getting to an armbar position early, where they're pretty dry, they're not sweaty yet, and then force Gomez to tap out. The props I like for this fight, I think Juarez either finishes Niao Liang on the ground, TKO, or on the feet with a knockout, 
or Liang's going to finish her by submission. We got three rounds to get it done, and in my opinion, the fight does not go the full distance. Now, we don't have a prop number on that yet, but that'd be a prop that I would look at. The two other props I like is Juarez by TKO and Nya Liang by round one submission. I don't have a number on that yet. Please bet that. You don't want this fight to go by. You had a prop right in front of you that was staring you in the eye that's happened already twice in her last two fights. You got to take a look at that. Don't put too much money on it. It is women's MMA, but I do respect Nya Liang's submission ability. She's very good in that area, and as for Juarez, has shown not to be very good in that department. It should be mentioned that Juarez is training at the better gym. Entram Gym is a phenomenal gym with great strikers and great martial artists across the board. For Nali Yang, not training at that level of gym, so that could be a factor as well. That's the breakdown, guys. We like Nali Yang, the underdog, at plus 135 to win the fight. We feel like there's an opportunity for her to get a submission win. And if not, maybe Juarez surprises her with a TKO of some kind. The fight probably does not go the distance. That's our thoughts, guys. Are we overestimating Nali Yang? Are we underestimating Juarez? Let me know what you guys think. Who do you guys want to win? How does it happen? All right, guys, we'll see you guys soon. On to the next video. Deuces. Next up in the car, we have a Bantamweight bout at 135 pounds between two Asian fighters. You got Bakaral Dana, who goes by Storm, hails from Mongolia, and Kyung Ho Kang, who hails from South Korea. Kyung Ho Kang goes by Mr. Perfect. He's 17-9 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Slight dog here, plus 125 on the money line, and he still does his training out of South Korea. 34 years old, 5'9 in height with a 73-inch reach. He trains out of Busan Team MAD. As for Bakaral, he's 12-3 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Slight favor here at minus 150 on the money line. He's from Mongolia, but now based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he trains out of Jackson Wink. MMA. 32 years old, 11 months, so about to be 33. 5'7 in height with a 70 inch reach. So size-wise, about a 3 inch advantage for Kang and about a 2 inch height advantage as well for Kang, and they're about the same age. Now looking at the numbers on tapology, it appears that Dana is the favorite, getting 78% of the votes, only 22% coming in for Kang. I do agree with the public. I like Bakaral Dana to win this fight. There's some recency bias, I believe, affecting the money line. He's minus 150 in the money line, but I believe he should be more like minus 250 to minus 300. I think he's a much better fighter than Kang. Kang has good UFC experience. I'm not saying he doesn't have a chance to win the fight. Dana Bakaral in the last fight just made a simple mistake, got a little cocky, walked right into a spinning elbow, and the fight was stopped, maybe in my opinion, a little prematurely. Now looking at the striking numbers for Kang, averaging 2.56 strikes per minute, observing 2.36. He's not a very high volume striker and just about an even striking ratio. As for Bakarao, landing 5.66 per minute, much busier, almost double the amount of output, observing 3.45. And that's an area of the fight where I believe will matter quite a bit. On the feet, Bakarao will be pushing the pace, he'll be forcing Kang to circle him, and the output and the volume will be the side of Dana Bakarao. If it goes to decision, that's going to matter quite a bit. Now as for wrestling, Kang is averaging 2.23 takedowns per fight compared to 0.53 for Dana, so clearly Kang's much more of a wrestler grappler. For Bakarao, he can wrestle. His wrestling defense is pretty good. His ground game is okay, but he'd rather just fight in the feet and just bang with his hands. As for takedown defense, 57% for Dana Bakarao and 68% for Kang. Let's talk about Kyung Ho Kang first. He's from South Korea, where he's still fighting out of. He's a purple belt in BJJ. He went pro 2007 with no amateur record. He signed to the UFC in 2013. He's 6-3-1 in the UFC. He's the former Road FC Bantamweight champion. He won fight of the night one time in the UFC. His last opponent was Ronnie Yaya, 2021 last year, decision loss. He was a slight favorite at minus 120 in the money line. Ronnie was about 37 years old at the time of the fight. In round one, Kang knocks him down. Nice, clear knockdown. Hurts him, hits him in the temple. Looks like the fight's going to get ended at some point. But Yaya just being the veteran, while the veteran hangs on, gets through round one, loses round one for sure. So Kang looks good at the beginning of the fight. Round two and three, Kang gets exposed in the ground. Yaya takes him to the ground, has back control for 
the entire part of round two. Round three gets to the ground again, and Kang just cannot stop the ground game, cannot get back up. So from a guy who's fought like 10 UFC fights, who is a veteran himself in Kang, his ground game was exposed in his last fight with a veteran like Ronnie Yaya who was able to slip out a win there in a fight that Kang probably should have won, and he was a slight favorite in. His prior fight that I want to talk about is Brandon Davis, 2019 split decision win. It's about three years ago. He's a minus 195 favorite in that fight. Split decision win. They both fought Brandon Davis, by the way. So he beats Brandon Davis by a split decision, whereas Dana Baccarat knocked out Brandon Davis in round one. And one more fight, Ricardo Ramos. He fought him in 2018, lost the fight by split decision. He was a plus 240 underdog. Ramos is a good fighter, though. He's 6-3 in the UFC. So what do I like about Kang? I like the fact that he's an MMA veteran. He's had 10 UFC fights, 15-year MMA pro career. He's fought all over around the world. And he's a balanced fighter. He's decent on the ground. When he's the better ground opponent, he could take advantage of guys on the ground. He'll get back control. He'll look for submissions. On the feet, very tall, very rangy, good lower leg kicks, very balanced striker. Holds his hands a little bit low for my liking at times. But again, quick guy, very athletic, overall balance fighter. Now, my big concerns for him are the ground defense. He did lose the last fight against Yaya specifically because he couldn't defend takedowns. Now, one round, okay, whatever. Round two, it happens. You give up back control. But round three comes around, dude. You got to stay on your feet. You end up messing it up. You get on the ground with a guy who's a veteran, and you lose a fight. So ground defense, not very good. Should it matter this fight? No. Baccarat out is a stand-up fighter only. That, that's how he wants to fight the entire time. He typically has a way of fighting down to his opponent's level or fighting up to his opponent's level, however you want to compare it. The guy has a lot of close fights in his record. For example, his last two wins were by split decision. Three of his last five wins have been by split decision. Of his 10 total UFC fights, half of them have gone either to split decision or to a draw. So the guy just has a tendency to go to the scorecards in close fights. I'm not sure again if he's fighting down to the competition or fighting up, but he's not a very decisive winner, put it that way. He still lacks a signature win in the UFC. After 10 UFC fights, look at the topology. There's no names that pop out there to you. He's fought some okay guys like Ricardo Ramos and guys like Brandon Davis, but he doesn't have a signature win yet in his topology. He hasn't been very active the past two years either. He fought once last year. He didn't fight at all in 2020, which we could chalk up as a COVID year. 2019, he fought three times. Prior to 2020, he was pretty active, but the last two years has not been active. Has finishing ability. Yes, there's some finishes in his topology, but three finishes in his last 10 fights, not a very high finish rate. Most of his UFC wins are against below average fighters. I want to emphasize this. Most of his UFC wins are against below average fighters. The combined record of the opponents that he has won against in the UFC is 98, 67, and 17. One of those guys, Shimizu, I believe his name is, is 35, 25, and 11 overall. <laughs> 35, 25, and 11, they fought in the UFC. The UFC has tried to give this guy an opportunity to win. The UFC has not hidden their agenda with this. They do want to appeal more to the Far East market. They want to get more Asian fans on board. There's like billions of people in China alone. So they have to have more Asian fighters, obviously, for that audience. But when you look at this guy's topology, they have not been giving him killers. Matter of fact, I could argue that Dana Baccarat might be his hardest opponent he's fought to date. So I'm just saying he's had a kind of a padded record and hasn't fought very good opponents, even while in the UFC. Now, as for Dana Baccarat, who hails from Mongolia, he started with kickboxing first before transitioning to mixed martial arts. He went pro 2011. He signed to UFC 2019. He's 3-2 in the UFC. He fought in several promotions in the Far East prior to joining the UFC. He's the former MGL featherweight champion, which is a Mongolian promotion. He won Friday night once and performance of the night once in the UFC. His last opponent, Chris Gutierrez, 2022, this year, round two TKL loss. And man, if you watch the fight, it was a spinning elbow, very exciting finish. I thought the referee stepped in a little prematurely, but it's arguable. It just seemed to me as if he was on the ground trying to recover and I don't know, just seemed a little pre premature. Anyway, he went to that fight as a minus 135 favorite. He got very surprised by a spinning elbow. It was in round two. 
What ends up happening is pretty simple. Baccarat felt like he could just walk down Gutierrez. He had no respect for Gutierrez's power. He was walking him down, hands were low, being a little wild, which is a pro and a con for him at times, being careless, basically, not protecting his head. Round one looked like it went clearly to Baccarat. So now we have round two. Gutierrez is backing up the entire time. He's got this Mongolian guy rushing him, pushing forward pace. He's like, let me try anything. I'll try a spinning elbow. It lands and knocks down Baccarat. Baccarat is trying to recover. Gutierrez jumps on top, does land a few strikes, but it seems like the referee just jumped a tad too soon. I would like to have seen that go a little bit longer to see if Baccarat could recover. Baccarat got right back to his feet. He immediately contested the stoppage of the fight, but it doesn't take away from the fact that he got completely cold clocked. He definitely got knocked down. He got surprised. Hopefully a lesson for him. You can't just come walking forward. Every guy out there has a chance to hurt you no matter who you are. So I think he got a little overconfident in that spot. Needs to kind of settle down a little bit. He had one round one, mind you. Okay, so he didn't need to do that in round two. He'd have to push the pace. He wasn't behind in the fight. He got a little reckless there. His prior fight, he fought Brandon Davis last year, won the fight via round one TKO as a minus 150 favorite. I'll tell you what, he came into that fight with a chip on his shoulder. He came right at Brandon Davis, pushed the tempo, completely bullied the poor guy. The same guy who went to split decision about three, four years ago with our other guy, Kang. Again, MMA math, you can't always use that, but I looked at that fight and I had to look it back a few times. The way he treated Brandon Davis, that's something that Kang does not have in his arsenal. He's not a forward pressure fighter. He's not a bully type of fighter. Whereas Dana Baccarat, he's going to bully you. Now, he may mess up himself and get caught with a spinning elbow or something like that. But if you don't catch him with something or stop him, he's going to keep coming after you. I believe he's going to do that on Saturday against Kang. He also fought Kennedy, 2020, round one TKO win. And he fought Haley Alatang, 2019 decision loss. Now, some things I like about Baccarat, excellent finishing ability. We talked about his finishing ability. He's got 10 of his 12 wins are by finish, eight by TKO and two by submission. That tells you it's the power in the hands. He's got finishing power in his hands. His last nine wins have all been finishes. Exit forward pressure. He's a bully. He's going to walk you down, cut off the cage, push you against the cage. He's going to close distance. He usually has a reach disadvantage. He makes up for that by his forward pressure. Excellent dirty boxing. In the clinch against the cage, he's a shorter fighter, gets his head under the opponent's head, able to work the body, able to work knees, able to work elbows in the clinch. He's very good at dirty boxing. Again, it makes sense. Here's a guy with shorter arms, right? Not great boxing technique, more like boxing power, like the Mike Tyson effect, coming at you, just trying to throw power, trying to bully you. He's also very durable, though he did get finished in his last fight, and I kind of made my point that maybe it was a little bit premature. Other than that fight, he's been very durable, has not been finished. Now, my concerns for Baccarat. He's still in search of a signature win himself in the UFC. He's beaten a few guys in the UFC, but nothing that's very notable. In his last fight, he was reckless, showed poor IQ. He was ahead in the fight, did not need to push pressure the way he did, did not need to get reckless the way he did, and hopefully he learned from that an important lesson. He's got to be a little more disciplined. The fights we watched right on this film, we watched Kang vs. Davis, 2020, Kang vs. Yaya, 2021, Dana vs. Davis from last year, and Dana vs. Gutierrez from earlier this year. To watch any one of those four fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube, and you'll see those four links available. All right, my last few thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, about the same. You got more total fights for Kang, but I believe that Dana Baccarat has fought the better strength of schedule. For fighter IQ, I'm going to give a slight edge to Dana Baccarat. Even though Kang is maybe the more balanced fighter, has a bit of a ground game, on the feet doesn't offer very much. And here's a guy who's fought a lot of soft fighters last 10 fights, hasn't performed very well, fights down to the competition. I think the overall fighter IQ is on the side of Dana Baccarat. As for cardio, both guys check out. They have good cardio late in fights. As for finishing ability, I give a huge edge to Dana Baccarat. We already talked about it. His numbers support that. Kang is the more technical striker. Better kicking game. Overall, just more balance. Right down the pipe, good combinations. But Dana Baccarat has so much more power. It's not even close. So from a striking standpoint, I have to give an edge to Dana Baccarat because he can knock out this guy at any point in three rounds. Whereas Kang, he's got lower volume. His technique-wise looks good, but he's got lower volume. 
doesn't have an attacking pace, doesn't push you against defense, doesn't have finishing power in his hands. So from a striking standpoint, I give the edge to Dana Baccarat. Grappling, it's a bit of a wash. The numbers suggest to you that Kang's a better grappler, but when you watch Dana Baccarat fights, if he gets to the ground, he's functional. He's a shorter fighter. He's more built like a wrestler. He's very athletic. So for grappling, I give him about the same grade. Now the props I like for this fight, I like the fight not go the distance. I don't have a number on that yet, but I believe there's some violence at some point in this fight. And I think it comes from the side of Dana Baccarat. The TKO prop for Dana Baccarat, gotta give that a look as well. And I guess take a glance at decision props for Dana and Kang. They're not out just yet, but those are props that I would take a look at. That's the breakdown for the fight, guys. Let me know what you think. Do you guys like Dana Baccarat as well? Or do you guys like Kang? He is a veteran, been around for a while. Good striking ability. At minus 150, this may be one of the best bets in the money line of the entire card because I have a lot of confidence in Dana Baccarat. There is some recency bias affecting this line. His last loss, it was ugly, spinning back fist. If you didn't watch it, you're thinking the guy just got KO'd, knocked out round two. Watch it back yourself. You see what I'm talking about. It wasn't quite the cleanest. The guy has not displayed chin issues in the past. He's actually got a very good chin. Bottom line is this. The money line is being impacted by that recent fight at minus 150. I love that spot. All right, guys, until the next video. Okay, next fight in the card is going to be a welterweight bout at 170 pounds between Jake Matthews, who goes by the Celtic Kid, and Andre Fialo, who's from Portugal. Fialo's 16-4 overall. He's 4-1 in his last five fights. A slight favor here at minus 150 in the main line. He's now based out of Deerfield Beach, Florida, 28 years old. Six foot in height with a 74 inch reach. He trains out of Sanford MMA. As for Jake Matthews, he's 17 and 5 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. A slight dog here, plus 125 on the middle line. He's out of Australia, out of Melbourne, Australia to be specific, 27 years old. 5 foot 11 in height with a 72 inch reach. He trains out of Nexus. So, height and reach wise, a small advantage for Andre Fialo. Experience in the octagon, about the same. And age wise, only one year difference. Now, as for the numbers on tapology, it appears that Fialo is the favorite, getting 82% of the votes, only 18% coming in for Jake Matthews. Now, this is definitely because of the recent fights that Fialo has been in. He's He's fought literally like every other month this year. This will be his uh, fourth fight this year. The guy is very active, big time knockouts. He's got some scary power in his hands and that's obviously impacting the votes here on Tapology. So as for the striking numbers in these two fighters, surprisingly enough, Andre Fialo is landing 4.23 per minute, but absorbing 6.75. So he does have a negative striking ratio. As for Matthews, landing 3.03 per minute, absorbing 2.16, a positive ratio, but lower output. Now, in terms of wrestling, Jake Matthews averages 1.93 takedowns per 15 minutes and defends at a 66% rate. For Fialo, not much of a wrestler, zero takedowns as far in the UFC, but defends at a pretty good rate at 75%. Now, looking at the fighter profile for Jake Matthews, he was born and raised in Australia. He grew up playing Australian football. He picked up mixed martial arts in the offseason to do some training to keep himself in shape, and his dad was like his first coach, and his brother was his first sparring partner. He eventually fell in love with mixed martial arts and decided to leave Australian football to focus on mixed martial arts full-time. He's a black belt BJJ. He fought in Australia FC and Kings of Combat before the UFC. He originally signed to the UFC in 2014. He's got a 10-5 record in the UFC. He took part in the Ultimate Fighter in 2016, where he lost to Kevin Lee in the finale. He's earned Fight of the Night honors twice in the UFC. His last fight was against Sean Brady, 2021, round two submission loss. He was a plus 180 underdog in that fight. He shot for an early takedown in round one. He got reversed, and he got completely outgrappled and wrestled for the rest of the fight until he ended up getting submitted. Sean Brady is a high-level BJJ practitioner, so it's not the worst loss, but I start wondering when I watch that fight. Is Jake Matthews showing the signs of wear and tear? He's not very old, but he's been around for a while. In that fight, he looked like an older fighter. He couldn't wrestle and grapple with Sean Brady. And Sean Brady is about the same age, but simply had a little more spunk to him. So it wasn't a great fight. It wasn't the worst fight. Again, Sean Brady is a good fighter, but you just kind of walk away from that fight wondering, does Jake Matthews have what it takes to stay around the UFC much longer? His prior fight, Diego Sanchez, 2020, decision win. And of course, there's a lot of stories about Diego Sanchez. He's no longer in the UFC. The guy's been in some wars. He was one of the first winners in the Ultimate Fighter, yada, yada, yada. But the bottom line is that was a skeleton version of Diego Sanchez. And yet Jake Matthews could not put him away. 
Now, Matthews did win every single round in that fight, but as a minus 715 favorite, not the kind of performance you would expect to have that night. And he also fought Jiang Li, 2018 decision win, maybe the biggest win so far in his career. Now, the things I do like about Jake Matthews, he's an MMA veteran extensive overall MMA fighting experience, and 15 total fights in UFC. He's a solid wrestler, averaging just about two takedowns per 15 minutes, and he has a positive striking ratio. Now, my concern for Jake Matthews, he has a low finish rate. Five of his last six wins have been by decision, and I have questions about his durability. He's been finished in four of his five losses, three times by submission and one time by TKO. And overall, his competition schedule in the UFC has been pretty weak. His toughest opponents to date have been Sean Brady, who he lost to, and Kevin Lee, who he lost to. He's not very active, especially compared to his opponent, Andre Fiala, who we'll talk about in a second. He fought once last year, he fought twice 2020 and once 2019. And in this matchup against Fiala, he's going to have a speed disadvantage and a volume disadvantage. Fiala is simply more active on the feet. He throws a little more volume. That could be a big factor if he goes to the scorecards. Now, as for Andre Fiala, he's from Portugal. He grew up playing soccer and boxing. His father's a former professional boxer, and his father opened up a gym in Portugal, which was the first training grounds for Andre Fiala. He became an amateur boxing champion in his home country of Portugal. He fought in Bellator, PFL, LFA, and UAE prior to the UFC. He's a former UAE Warriors champion. He's in performance tonight in his last two UFC fights. He signed to the UFC this year. He's already fought three fights. He's 2-1 overall in the UFC. He just recently fought against Cameron Van Camp, where he had a round one TKO win. He was a minus 465 favorite, and he showed up and got it done. He was a replacement fighter in that fight, mind you. He established a hard jab early on, and he drops Van Camp with a nasty lead left hook. So he's a left-hand lead boxer, but his left hook is nasty. It's short and it's quick, and that's how he dropped Van Camp in that fight. His prior fight, Miguel Baeza, earlier this year, he was a plus 150 underdog. Again, a replacement fighter for that fight. He started the fight off just like the Van Camp fight. Good jab. Nice straight jab. Remember, amateur boxing champion. Remember, dad was a pro boxer. Started off training in boxing first. His striking is very good. It's polished. Put it that way. So he starts off with some nice lower leg kicks, some good strikes, measures the distance, and one thing about Fialo is he doesn't miss a lot of strikes. He measures distance very well, and he lands at a very high rate. What ends up happening in this fight is they're going at it, he's hurting Baeza, Baeza's bleeding a little bit, they get into like a clinch in the middle of the octagon, and Fialo grabs the back of Baeza's neck, some dirty boxing technique, grabs the back of his neck, and then starts throwing some uppercuts from the front side, hits him with like two or three nasty uppercuts, and you see Baeza's legs kind of wilt a little bit, he kind of backs up, he's on his feet still kind of backing up, almost falling, and then here comes that left short hook again by Fialo. Watch out for that left hook in this fight. It's his lead hand. He comes in, boom, left hook, and just sends Baeza to the canvas. It's a nasty knockout. Lands one or two more strikes. The referee comes in and calls the fight. Baeza tries to argue, but Baeza was done. He was knocked out. His prior fight, the first fight that he fought this year, his first fight in the UFC, Michelle Pereira, he was a plus 230 underdog. He does win round one in all three judges scorecards. Round two and three, Michelle Pereira had a little more gas in the tank. The Wally veteran landed a few nice strikes. Definitely stuns Fiala at some point. It was a very late notice fight. Fiala didn't have a full camp. I think they fought again, which they should fight again maybe next year at some point. I think he beats Michelle Pereira. Anyway, he showed a lot of toughness in that fight with full distance. Michelle Pereira's a crafty veteran, did enough to win the fight, but it was a good starting point for him. From there, he's gotten better and better, made improvements, and obviously been very active since that point. Now, some things I like about Fialo. In 2015, he left Portugal with the dream of becoming a mixed martial artist and making it to the UFC, like picked up whatever he had, left his home country, had a vision. The guy is mentally determined. Fighting his fourth UFC fight this year, the guy has a vision. He clearly has devoted all of his time and his energy to this profession. He has an excellent boxing foundation that we talked about. You could tell when he fights, his jab is not only quick, it's snappy, it's straightforward. It tends to split the guard of his opponent. You can expect to see that jab early in this fight. He has excellent KO power and a phenomenal finish rate. His last six wins have all been by TKO. He does a, he does a phenomenal job of measuring distance. He's very accurate with his striking. He got chin checked a few times against Pereira and against Baeza, but showed a solid chin. Now my concerns for Fiala, number one, the ground game. Remember, his roots are in boxing. 
Not wrestling, not in Sambo, not BJJ. So the ground game is clearly his most efficient part of his game. That could be a factor in this fight because Jake Matthews does average two takedowns per fight and is a pretty good overall wrestler. The second thing is he is taking fights often, right? This will be his fourth fight this year. He's not getting a full camp in. It's an amazing story. This guy's fighting like every other month and we want to see him in there. And his hands are amazing, KO power, and he's not going the full distance in these fights. Obviously, he's not taking a lot of punishment. But with that said, he's just a human. His body does have to recover. He's not going through a full recovery cycle, not going through a full camp. Can that catch up with him? Right now, he's blazing a trail. People love him. They'll be betting on him this weekend for sure. But could he run into a hiccup here because he hasn't fully recovered, not giving himself time to sort of unwind and then get a full camp in, learn some new things, make improvements. You don't typically make improvements in the fights. Now, you learn more about what you've done between camps. You see your improvement in the fights. You learn more about yourself, but you don't improve in fights. That's what practice is for. That's what taking long training camps is for improve your cardio improve your striking can he be making big improvements if he's taking fights every other month you know what i'm saying the fights we watched right on this film we watched fiala versus van camp fiala versus baeza and fiala versus Pereira, which were all again this year we also watched matthews versus brady and matthews versus sanchez to watch any one of those five fights if you just look down below here in our free video library you'll see those five links available in the description my final thoughts on these two fighters experience wise very similar they've both fought about the same amount of matches they're both about the same age and they both fought about the same level of caliber opponent for fighter IQ, about the same. Neither fighter does anything like very stupid or silly in the octagon. They both have a will to win. They don't give up. They're overall good fighters. I would say maybe Jake Matthews is the better overall rounded fighter. Then again, you gotta love Fiala's story outside the octagon. He's got some sense to him. The guy's fighting often. He's in the UFC. He's fourth fight this year. He's collecting that money, getting wins, knocking people out. He probably fights again this year. It's crazy. This guy's, uh, he's blazing a trail. As for cardio, both guys have good cardio, but I would say Jake Matthews maybe has an edge here. He's had a full camp to prepare for this fight. Fialo is a late replacement, which is how he likes it, but still nonetheless, again, not getting a full camp in. In the Pereira fight, he was more of a late replacement than this fight, but still, in that fight, you saw him slow down round two, round three, along with his power starting to diminish a little bit in round two, round three. He usually knocks people out early in the fight, like round one. So if the fight gets to round three, I think Jake Matthews will have a cardio edge in this matchup. Now for finishing ability, of course, we edge with Fialo, not to mention Jake Matthews is not very much of a finisher himself. For striking ability, I give the edge to Fialo. Now I do like Jake Matthews' boxing. He's got a good ground game, good wrestling attack, but his boxing is clean. I think though he'll have a speed disadvantage in this fight along with a volume disadvantage. So I give an edge in the striking to Fialo. As for grappling, Matthews will have definitely a grappling advantage. Again, he's got a better background in it versus Fialo who comes from a boxing background. If the fight gets to the ground, the key will be, can Fialo get back up? Can Matthews keep him down for long periods of time? Can he land some significant strikes in the ground? I imagine at some point, Jake will at least try to get a takedown, try to get him up against the cage. Fialo's pretty athletic. He's got good footwork. He knows Jake will try to do that. So when it comes to grappling, Matthews has an edge there, but can he actually take advantage of that in this fight by getting the fight to the ground? And last category, who has more heart? Who has more cojones, right? So Jake Matthews has been around for a while. I have no reason to question his heart. The guy's a warrior, been around for a while. He's only 27 years old, but man, this Fialo character, you know, fourth fight this year. He's cut from a different cloth, as they say, right? He's got a different set of cojones that are bigger than most guys. Most fighters will fight, what, maybe once, twice a year. Those would be active fighters. Some guys fight maybe once every 14 to 16 months. This guy's fighting every other month. So when it comes to heart, passion, or just flat out desire to win and get better at this thing and move the way up the ladder. I got to give this kid a little bit of an edge. He's showing a lot of spunk. When I see his name on another card, I'm like, again, this guy just fought. It's tremendous. As for the props that I like for this fight, the fight not going to decision is minus 160. I do like that spot. And that's obviously because I like Fialo in some kind of finish in round one or round two by TKO. The TKO prop for Fialo is plus 105. That's a TKO anytime in the fight. Now here's a unique prop for you. A round one TKO finish by Fialo is plus 250. I thought, man, that's not a great number. And that shows you how much the books think that he has a chance to knock this guy out in round one. 
I'm not going to bet that prop, but around one KO prop for Andre Fialo, which is still likely though, is plus 250. Anytime TKO though for Fialo is plus 105. Now for Jake Matthews, if you like him to win somehow, I like this prop. How about this? Buy submission is plus 600. Buy submission in round three is plus 2,500. And here's my thinking on this. He does have some submission wins back in the day. Not anything recently, but he does have some submission wins. Fialo's not very good on the ground. If it gets to round three, maybe Fialo again, it catches up to him. All these fights in a short period of time, not completely getting recovered, not having a full camp. Maybe the cardio has an issue and round three gets taken down, not good in the ground. Jake Matthews can maybe squeeze in some kind of rear naked choke. Plus 600 for any time submission by Jake Matthews. I'm going to probably sprinkle that along with that round three submission. Now, could Matthews get a decision win here? Get some takedowns in round one or round two and round three, get some position control, frustrate Fialo, exhaust him. If you like Matthews by decision, that's plus 240, not a bad prop. I would also look at the prop of the fight starting round two. I'm going to bet that prop if it's something reasonable. I think this fight definitely hits round two. I like Fialo's power, but I think a fresh Jake Matthews in round one will be do enough to at least get the fight to round two gonna be a good fight either way at minus 150 it's more or less a pick em. i do like fiala to win i like him by tko a little surprised my line's so close but again there's some respect there for jake matthews been a veteran in the ufc been around for a while had a full camp and you got fiala coming here late replacement but i like thunder hands here i think fiala gets the win that's the breakdown guys if you don't agree with our pick let me know what you think do you like jake matthews am i overrating fiala give us some comments give us some feedback good luck with this one guys we're on to the next fight Next up in the card is going to be a lightweight bout at 155 pounds between the Chinese fighter Hayasar Mahachete. I'm probably butchering that last name, so I apologize. Throughout the remainder of this video, I'm going to try to pronounce that name the best I can. I'll probably give you at least three or four different pronunciations, but uh, Mahachete. I kind of want to say Machete. That's like what my tongue wants to do with this word, but uh, Mahachete, first name Hayasar. Like, Haya. Anyway, he's squaring off against Steve Garcia. Garcia goes by Mean Machine. He's from the United States. He's 12 and four overall, four one of his last five fights. He's out of Rio Rancho, New Mexico. 30 years old, six foot in height with a 73 inch reach. He trains out of Jackson Wink MMA. As for Hayasar, he's six and one overall, five and zero in his last five fights. He hails out of the Sichuan province in China, 22 years old, six foot in height with a 71 and a half inch reach. He trains out of Embo Fight Club, which is a very well-known gym in the Far East. So both guys are fighting out of very good gyms. In terms of their size, about the same height, and reach-wise, a slight advantage there for Steve Garcia at about an inch and a half. The money line currently has Steve Garcia as the favorite at minus 155, and you can get Hyasar on the other side at plus 135. I like Hyasar to win the fight. I'll get that out the way right now. I think he's got a good chance to win the fight, probably by decision, if not maybe a late third round finish. Now looking at the striking numbers in these two fighters, Hyasar is landing 3.27 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.20. Decent volume, but not a great ratio. As for Garcia, landing 4.46 per minute, a little more volume, and absorbing 2.20. So a better ratio and a little more output. Now in terms of wrestling, Hyasar has not had a takedown yet in the UFC. Granted, he's only fought one fight, but when you watch him fight, he's more of a stand-up fighter. I haven't seen him on the ground yet, so I imagine his ground game is probably still kind of evolving, not very good there. As for Garcia, averaging 1.91 takedowns per fight, that's about two takedowns per 15 minutes minutes he's averaging 100 takedown defense which should not be tested here because watching hyasar on film he likes to fight in the feet that's where he feels comfortable that's where he wants to fight now looking at the background of these two fighters hyasar mahachete he fought his first pro fight 2019 at the age of 19 this will mark his ufc debut he earned his ufc contract on dana white contender series last year at the age of 21 years old he's the first chinese fighter ever to earn a ufc contract through the dana white contender series he fought in wlf and m1 part of the ufc his last opponent, which was on Dana White Contender Series, was against Achille Estramadura. That was a win by decision. He was a plus 475 underdog. And if you recall last year, 2021 was not a good year for Asian, Chinese, Korean, anyone from the Far East that was fighting the UFC. 
they were collecting losses, both on Dana White Contender Series, both at UFC Fight Night. And so this money line was reflecting some of that. As a plus 475 underdog, he comes into the first round, gets knocked down, gets right back to his feet, but clearly had his bell rung, shows good survival skills, gets the fight back out into the open. He fully recovers. He's okay. But the first round clearly goes to Estremadura. In round two, he comes out, starts to take over the pace of the fight, lands a really nice high-flying knee, busts up the nose of his opponent, changes the full tempo of the fight, and then takes that into round three. Now, that's just one fight we have for him on film. We haven't watched a whole long library of fights in this guy, but what I took from this fight was a few things. One, very mature. For a very young fighter, he was patient. He showed survival skills. He came back later in the fight. He showed good durability. He was able to use his cardio as a weapon as well, because later in the fight, he was the much fresher fighter, and he displayed a very good chin. So a lot of positives from that just one fight. Now, granted, it's just one fight, and he's very young, but from what we saw in that fight against a good opponent, overall, very impressive. Now, the things I like about Mahashete, very solid chin, as we just talked about. He took some very hard shots in that fight, even after he got knocked down in round one, dealt with him very well, showed very good survival skills. In his last fight, he displayed the patience of a veteran fighter. He didn't overreact in the round one he got hurt. He didn't try to come back with a big overhand right or something crazy. He measured pace, measured tempo, and slowly ramped things up as he got into round two, round three. He picks up the pace more. He picks up the tempo, and basically, he weaponizes his cardio. It came down to a war of attrition in that Dana White Contender Series fight, and his opponent did not have the cardio, didn't have the poise in round two or round three that he did. So for the younger fighter, came in there with a real good mindset, high fighter IQ, and again, was able to use his cardio as a weapon later in the fight. Now, my concerns for Hayasar Mahashet that he's very young. He lacks experience. This will be his first UFC fight. He needs to improve his head movement. In his last fight, he gets knocked down in round one in part because he doesn't have good head movement. He tends to do that thing where he just backs up just backs his head up instead of having head movement, bobbing and moving or putting up his guard. So when things got a little hot and heavy for him in round one, he went to his instincts and his instincts were not very good. It was just back up, put your hands out. He's going to have to improve that against a guy like Garcia who will come after him, who likes to push pace and pressure, who likes to get wild sometimes. He can't just back his head up. He can get knocked out. And lastly, because we have a small sample size of film on him, he's very young, a lot of unknowns. I believe in the prospect that he's pretty good. He's on this card for a reason because he's an Asian fighter and this is being held in Singapore. I think he gets a decision win here or possibly get to knockout. But either way, this is a good fight for him. Steve Garcia is also a good fighter. We're going to talk about him in a second. But the bottom line is, it's a good matchup, and I think he gets the win here. Now, as for Steve Garcia, he went 1-0 as an amateur. He went pro in 2013, so the guy's been a pro for about nine years. He fought in Bellator and LFA prior to the UFC. He earned his UFC contract on Dana White Contender Series in 2020 with a round one TKO victory. He made his UFC debut in 2020 versus Luis Pena, and he's currently 1-1 in the UFC. His last fight was against Charlie Ontiveros, 2021, last year, round two TKO win. He was a minus three. 35 favorite got the job done he got dropped early in round one with an axe kick you don't see that kick very often but the thing about this kick was it barely landed i watched it several times it's like only maybe the top part of charlie ontiveros's foot hit him on the side of the head nonetheless it sends him into like wobby leg mode he's kind of off balance he tries to fight back shows some good toughness then gets actually knocked down with a punch secures a double leg takedown takes the fight to the ground so on one side of it it's like a sloppy beginning gets cracked a few times in the first minute of the fight but then shows some good fighter iq takes the fight to the ground lands some good punch on the ground, lands a nasty elbow that cuts his opponent badly in round one on the ground. So he kind of comes back in round one, probably still loses the round because he got knocked down. In round two, he comes out feeling good, pushes pace and pressure again, gets a takedown right away, very smart, grinds out his opponent on the ground and gets a TKO win. On paper, it looks like a great fight. You're like, wow, TKO win round two, beat a so-so prospect. When I watch
watched it back a few times, I have some serious concerns about his chin. His prior fight, Luis Pena, 2020, decision loss. Now, Pena's no longer with the UFC. That's not because he couldn't fight. He got in some trouble outside the UFC. He was a pretty good fighter when he was in the UFC. Very long guy, good submission skills. He went into that fight as a plus 205 underdog. He was a short notice replacement in his UFC debut. He got a nice takedown early in round one, but then couldn't do much with it. Pena ends up getting back to his feet and then getting back control on Garcia. And that was all she wrote. Pena literally had back control for almost the entire fucking fight. I'm talking about, if you watch this film, it's three rounds of Garcia not being able to defend back control and having a body triangle lock on him and Pena on his back, landing some punches at time, but pretty much a boring ground game where Pena has back control the entire time. He showed very poor fighter IQ and had no jiu-jitsu skills, no defense on the ground and couldn't defend takedowns. So just overall, not a good showing. I do want to point out something in this fight. And if you want to see something really weird, something you've never seen before, go to round three and watch this fight. And I'm going to try to talk you through what happens. I've never seen this shit before in my life. This is really weird. So Pena is on top trying to defend himself against a triangle choke. So Garcia is on his back, but Garcia has a moment where he's actually trying to look for a triangle choke. It's in round three. It's probably one of the best moments for him in the fight. You've got Pena on top trying to get himself out of this triangle choke. During this time, the commentators are mentioning how Garcia's toes are in the cage. They say Garcia's toes are in the cage, but the referee can't see it. The referee's like right there staring down at the action. He's like leaning on one knee. He's into it. He's focused, but he just doesn't look ahead and see that the fact that Garcia's toes are actually in the fence. All right, whatever. No big deal. Doesn't seem to be helping him that much, but here comes the cameraman from outside the cage. Like, listen to this shit. The cameraman from outside the cage comes over and just taps the toes of Garcia. Like, just taps them, like, not doesn't, like, push them back into the cage, but comes over and clearly from outside the cage, the cameraman, the guy who's holding the fucking big-ass cameras, he comes over and pushes the toes down a little bit. Not enough to push him back into the cage, but, like, taps them, and then right after that, Garcia takes his toes out of the cage. And I'm like, when the fuck did camera guys start touching athletes in the middle of a fight, like, tear toes, or hands like is that is that part of the protocol now so like if there's a cameraman outside the cage and someone's you know grabbing the cage and the referees will come over like hit the hand could the cameraman's now just like hit the hands or the toes it was so fucking shady if you want to see it for yourself go to round three of the fight against Luis Pena 2020 that links down below in the description here if you're watching on YouTube and you'll see what I'm talking about just a really really shady weird thing I'm sure after the fight was over they probably talked to that camera guy like listen dude you can't be like interfering with the fight just record the fight don't reach in there don't touch the fighters anyway some prior opponents he fought Ricky Tarusios 2016 a split decision loss that was in Bellator 151 Tarusios is currently 1-0 in the UFC he also fought Ronnie Lawrence 2016 got a decision win and that was one of the best wins of his career Ronnie Lawrence is currently in the UFC where he's 2-0 now the things I like about Garcia he has forward pressure he comes at his opponent he brings the heat he's trying to fight he wants to exchange if you're not comfortable with pressure you're gonna have a hard time with this guy he's also displayed a very good chin so far he's never been KO'd his only loss by finish was by submission he has some finishing ability he's also got some finishing ability his last four wins were all via finish he has one finish in the UFC already. He got a finish on the Dana White Contender Series in 2019 to earn his contract. Eight of his 12 wins are via finish, and all of them are by TKO. So no submission game, not much of a BJJ guy, but he's got some KO power. He's a pretty active fighter, not as active as Fialo, for example, but he fought once last year, twice 2020, and twice 2019. Now, my concerns for Garcia. I think he's got a suspect chin. I might be in the minority. I just talked about how he's never been knocked out before. But in watching that last fight, he got dropped early in round one. 
and I don't believe that either shot was that lethal to be dropping him. Not to mention, it was early in round one. It wasn't like it was in round three or four or five of a long fight where he took a pounding or even just a long round. It was early in round one. I got the impression from watching that fight that maybe his chin is not so solid. He's very open to counter shots, especially when he wants to come in and get wild. He likes to bully his opponent. He likes to come in and throw some looping shots. When he's doing that, he's wide open for counters. That's how he got knocked down the first time in his last fight. When he fought against Luis Pena, he displayed terrible BJJ skills, had no ability to defend against the body lock, could not get back to his feet. So when it comes to BJJ, if he's forced to fight in the ground, that's not his best area. For him, his preference is to fight in the feet. Lucky for him, that's what Mahashita likes as well. So this fight should be mostly on the feet. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Garcia versus Pena from 2020, Garcia versus Ontiveros from last year, and Hayasar Mahashita versus Estremadura from last year. If you want to watch any one of those three fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here in the description. We've provided three links for those three fights. My final few thoughts on these two fighters. I think Steve Garcia has an experience advantage. He's fought more than double the amount of fights as Hayasar Mahashete, and this will be Mahashete's UFC debut. For fighter IQ, I want to give Mahashete the fighter IQ advantage from what I saw on one fight, but that's just one fight. I think Steve Garcia, he makes mistakes at times, has to be weary of his chin, has to stay off the ground. For Hayasar Mahashete, he's still so young, 22 years old, so I'm going to give these guys both about the same fighter IQ rating. For cardio, I am going to be edged there to the younger fighter, Hayasar. Watching his last fight, he was fresh in round three. To me, he used cardio as a bit of a weapon. It was a war of attrition. He won that war. For Steve Garcia, he has an explosive fighting style. Round one, round two, he's got some KO power. Probably still carries that in some part of round three, but he tends to get sloppy even when he's fresh. I could see him slowing down a little bit in round three, so I'm going to get the cardio edge to Mahashete. As for finishing ability, I give the edge to Garcia. We talked about his good finish rate. As for Hayasar, only watching one fight seems to be like a guy where, again, a lot of wins will come because of a war of attrition. He'll beat guys up over over the course of a fight won't knock them out but wear and tear over the course of three rounds and will get most of his wins in that manner now for striking these guys are very closely matched hyasar is maybe the better technical boxer but garcia has a lot of power for volume very similar I think over the course of three rounds, maybe Mahashete lands the cleaner punches and shows less damage in the face, whereas Steve Garcia maybe lands the bigger, more notable strikes. And if it goes to the scorecards, it'll come down to how they look at it. Again, remind yourself, this is being held in Singapore. The hometown favorite will be Mahashete. The crowd will be ooing and aahing for everything Mahashete does and probably be booing anytime Garcia tries to do anything. This fight should be on the feet for the entire three rounds. Neither guy is much of a grappler. The props I like for this fight, the fight not going to decision is minus 250. I guess here's my thinking on this. I think Garcia either knocks out Mahashate with those powerful hands, or Mahashate wears him out, like grades him and grinds him for the course of two, three rounds on the feet, nice jabs, good punches, good volume, a few knees, and eventually just wears down Garcia to the point where he gets a TKO in round three. I think we get some balance here. I think we see a finish at minus 250. I like that prop. The TKO prop for Garcia, which is his usual path to victory, is plus 220. I might look to bet that spot no matter who I pick at the money line because I think his path to victory in this fight is via TKO. That's how I see him winning, not on the scorecards. Now, to win by decision for Mahashete, that's plus 500. That's a great spot. He showed in his last fight in Dana White Contender Series that he's going to win the fight usually over the course of time. Not a round one guy, not a round one and a half guy, but round two to round three. I love that prop at plus 500. Now, for Mahashete to win by TKO is plus 265. So the books are clearly suggesting that he wins more likely by TKO than by decision. Now, another prop to consider to more of a long shot is a round three finish of any kind by Hayasar Mahashete. That's plus 1,325. My thinking is pretty simple. Garcia wears himself out in round one and two. We've talked about Hayasar Mahashete has got a great gas tank, has great tempo, has great patience, fights like a veteran, only 22 years old, but takes his time, comes on in round two, round three. What if he comes on into round three, Garcia is slowing down, 
exposes himself just enough, and we get a knockout finish in round three in front of the home crowd there in Singapore, cheering on their Asian compadre at plus 1325. I'm going to get a little piece of that. Now, one more prop to mention is a round one KO win for Garcia is plus 600. In his last fight, Mahashete did get knocked down in round one, came out a little slow, wasn't ready for the Canadian, got knocked down. As for Garcia, he comes out like a Tasmanian devil. He likes to push the pace. He even puts himself in danger, but he'll come out swinging. Does he come out here and just knock this guy down right away? I've seen crazier things happen. He does have knockout power. He will come at him pretty quickly. And in his last fight, Hayasar Mahashete did get knocked down early. Those are the props I like. Look, consider this. The UFC is putting on an event in Singapore with a bunch of Asian fighters. Some of these matchups are ideal for these Asian fighters, like ideal prospects for them to fight to possibly get a win. The UFC did not match them up with a bunch of killers who they're going to lose against in front of their hometown crowd. No, they're giving them opponents that they can beat, people that are at their level or maybe below them. This is a good example of that. Steve Garcia is a good fighter. I'm not taking anything away from him. But Hayasar Mahashete, he matches up well with him, and he has a very good shot here to win. At plus 135 on the main line, I'll be betting him straight up to win on the money line, and I'll be looking at at least taking the prop by decision at plus 500, along with the prop for round three finish by plus 1325. That's your breakdown, boys and girls. Thanks for joining us. Please like and subscribe. And as always, we welcome your feedback. All right, next fight in the card should be the main event for the Pillion card. It's going to be a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between the Korean fighter Sung Woo Choi, who goes by Sting, versus Joshua Kulabao, who goes by Kuya. Kulabao hails from Australia. He's a dog here at plus 200 on the money line. He's 9-1-1 overall, 3-1-1 his last five fights, 28 years old, 5'10 in height with a 73-inch reach. He trains out of Igor MMA Academy, and he's based out of Sydney, Australia. As for Sung Woo Choi, he's 10-4 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He's a favorite currently at minus 225 on the money line. He's six foot in height with a 74 and a half inch reach. He trains out of MOB Training Center. Choi will have a small height and reach advantage, and they're both about the same age. As for the votes on Tapology, Choi is the big favorite, getting 84% of the votes, only 16% coming in for Kulabao. I do like Choi to win the fight. I also like the fact that he's got home court advantage. Let's talk about the striking numbers first. For Sungbu Choi, he's landing 3.38 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.91. Decent volume and a positive ratio. As for Josh Kulabal, landing 2.92 per minute, so about the same volume, but absorbing 3.05, so he does have a negative striking ratio. As for takedown offense, Choi is landing 0.88 takedowns per 15 minutes, whereas Kulabal is landing 0 takedowns per 15 minutes. For takedown defense, 66% for Choi and 86% for Kulabal. Looking at the background of these two fighters, Sung Woo Choi was born in South Korea. He now fights out of Seoul, Korea. He began martial arts at the age of 8 years old. He was the 2010 bronze medalist at the Muay Thai World Championships, so Muay Thai is one of his base martial arts. He went 1-0 as an amateur. He went pro 2015. He fought in TFC and Art of War prior to the UFC. He's the former TFC featherweight champion. He signed to the UFC in 2019. He earned performance of the night last year versus Julian Arosa. He has a bachelor's degree from Young University. Some of his most recent opponents, he fought Alice Caceres last year, lost by a round two submission. This fight was very interesting. He came in as a minus 275 favorite, and early on, he looked like it. He knocks down Caceres. He has Caceres hurt. He has like a front headlock, and as they're both standing up, he goes and lands a knee on Caceres' face as Caceres is still grounded. Referee stops the action at that point. When Caceres comes to his feet from that illegal knee, he wobbles, both because of the prior action that had happened and from the illegal knee. So he's clearly hurt. They stop the fight for a while. They allow Alex some time to recover. He does recover. They get back to action. And what ends up happening is he gets the back of Sung Woo Choi. While they're on the feet, he climbs the back. He mounts him. Sung Woo Choi does a very poor job of blocking the simple arm choke maneuver. He gets choked out on the feet, he drops to his knees, and quickly taps out. I do want to point this out. He not only did a poor job of defending the submission, I thought he tapped out really early. His prior fight, Julian Arosa, 2021, round one KO win. Early first round knockout, but Arosa, if you know him, the guy's kind of, uh, he's chinny. 
put it that way. It's a nice way of putting it. But I like the guy. I like Julian Rosa. Great fighter. Yusuf Zalal, 2021 decision win. He was a plus 200 underdog. A nice quality win in the UFC. He fought Gavin Tucker, 2019, round three rear naked choke loss. So here we go again. A submission loss. He's not very good at defending submissions. And one more fight. Mazlar Ivalov, 2019 decision loss. He was a plus 335 underdog. That decision loss is actually aging well because of the fact that Mazlar looks very good. Now, the things I like about Choi, his finishing ability is very good. Four of his last six wins were by TKO. Six of his 10 wins overall have been by TKO. He has no submission finishes. He doesn't do submissions and he doesn't defend them very well. He has solid UFC experience against quality level fighters. He's a very active fighter. He fought three times last year. Didn't fight at all in 2020, but we can give him a pass there because of the whole COVID year. In 2019, he fought three times as well. He does average about one takedown per fight and he does mix in takedowns every now and then. He does have a kicking game. I just wish he would use it more often. He's got a nice lower leg kick and a body kick. He has excellent footwork and moves in and out of range very well. Now, my concerns for Choi, durability issues. He's been finished in three of his four losses, two times by submission and one time by TKO. So when I say durability, I'm not saying he's chinny. I'm saying if you put a choke on him, he's going to tap quickly. He's done in the past. His fight against Caceres was a definition of poor fighter IQ. He has Caceres clearly hurt. I'm not sure why he went for that knee. It was too close to even go for that knee. He gets an illegal knee. It ends up costing him the fight in essence because had he just kept striking, had he kept the fight in the feet and just used his hands, he would have finished Alex Caceres. Instead, he pulls a poor fighter IQ move, gets excited, doesn't realize what's going on, lands an illegal knee and it costs him the fight. And he comes up short against better opponents. For example, against Caceres, he got finished. Against Gavin Tucker, he got finished. And he lost by decision against Mazar Ivalov. So thus far, when he fights the better opponents, the guys who are like above average, he loses those fights. As for the Australian Josh Koulibaly, he's from Sydney, Australia. He started Taekwondo as a child. He later moved over to mixed martial arts, but it was not because of a transition of martial arts. It was more because he was overweight and trying to stay in shape in his teenage years. He's a purple belt in BJJ. He went two and one as an amateur. He went pro 2016. So he's been a pro for about six years. He fought an urban fight night, hex fight series, and Diamondback FC prior to the UFC. He's the former HEX featherweight champion, the former DC featherweight champion, and former super fightweight MMA featherweight champion. He worked as a full-time electrician prior to the time of the UFC. He signed to the UFC in 2020. He's currently 1-1-1 one, one, one in the UFC. His last opponent, he fought Shailin Nurdenbeke, 2021 decision win. He was a minus 245 favorite. He lost round one due to control time. If you know how Shailin fights, he's a grappler, a wrestler, a Khabib type, hold you, position control, not a lot of volume, doesn't strike a lot. Submission game is okay. So round one was a prototypical Shailin first round where he just simply dominates on the ground, has position control. He bounces back in round two with great boxing, keeping the fight at distance, shows his ability to strike at range, wins round two very clearly. In round three, it's a repeat of round two, but now he's also doing damage to Shailen's face. He bounces back after dropping round one to win round two and three and eventually win the fight. He fought Charles Jordan last year as well and had a draw. This fight was very interesting. If you watch the fight back, nothing happens in the way of points. When you see a draw, you think, okay, points must have been taken away. No, it's just a good fight. I thought Charles Jardin lost round one, but then I thought he came back and won round two and three. So I thought Kilubao lost this fight. It goes to draw, so it ends up being a wash. He was a plus 355 underdog in that fight. So coming out with a draw, not so bad. Jordan has won three of his last four UFC fights, a legit UFC fighter. So this draw doesn't look that bad, considering, again, I thought he lost a fight. So a draw is better than having a loss. His prior fight, Jalen Turner, 2020, round two TKO loss as a plus 190 underdog. Give him a full pass on this fight. He was the much smaller fighter, fighting up in weight, late minute replacement. Jalen Turner ate him for lunch. He had no chance in that fight. And one more fight, Zhu Rong, 2020, round one KO loss while fighting in WLF Wars. Rong is one and two in the UFC. Now, the things I do like about Kulabal, he does have finishing power. He hasn't done it yet in the UFC, but prior to the UFC, he's got a lot of finishes. He's very durable, only been finished one time. That was a Jalen Turner fight, where again, he was so overmatched, you can understand the situation. He has a very hard lower leg kick that he throws in combination. 
He fights best at range. He's got good long arms, nice combinations, quick hands. He has very good boxing skills overall and good boxing instincts. He also uses a very good lead jab. Now my concerns for Kulabal, his one UFC win is over Shailen Nurembeke, a guy who's very one-dimensional, a one-in-one UFC fighter, a guy with 46 total fights who's kind of like one of those Asian fighters who's just in the UFC just to kind of fill the quota, you know what I mean? So doesn't have a really quality UFC win just yet. I think when you compare his strength of schedule to Choi's, Choi has a slight advantage in that department. I'm not saying it's a weak strength of schedule, but he hasn't really fought great fighters. Yes, Jalen Turner, yes, Jordan, but that's about it. The fights we watch in this film, we watch Kulabal versus Jordan, Kulabal versus Nurembeke, Choi versus Alal, Choi versus Arosa, and Choi versus Caceres. If you want to watch any one of those five fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube. In the description, you're going to see those five links. My final few thoughts on this fight, guys. Experience-wise, about the same. They're about the same age, they fought a similar strength of schedule, and they fought about the same amount of fights. As for fighter IQ, I'm going to give a slight edge to Joshua Kulabal, mostly because of what Sung Boo Choi did in the fight against Caceres. He really had a chance to win that fight by TKO. Instead, he ends up losing that fight. So just some questions there about his fighter IQ. As for cardio, both guys check out. For finishing ability, I give an edge to Sung Woo Choi. He's got some power in his hands. Kulabal does too, but according to the numbers, Sung Woo Choi is the better finisher right now. As for striking, both guys are very good strikers. These guys both have excellent boxing skills and good leg kicks. Neither guy is an amazing grappler. And I believe most of the fight's on the feet, so I'm not sure it plays a part in this fight. And last but not least, who has more heart? Who has more cojones? I'm going to give the edge to Kulabal for two reasons. Number one, he stepped up in his UFC debut and fought Jalen Turner on late notice, undersized, got his ass beat, but went in there and showed some balls. As for Sung Woo Choi, he has Alex Caceres beat, lands an illegal knee. Okay, whatever. Get to round two. Things aren't going your way. He gets backpacked and barely fights off a choke and taps so fast. He tapped almost immediately. So if the fight gets close and gets ugly, I give an edge to Kulabal. If it's a clean fight at distance, I think Samucho wins that fight, has the better striking. Now the props I'm going to look at for this fight, the fight goes to decision is minus 110. I like that spot. These guys are very evenly matched. I can see easy going to decision. The fight starts round two is minus 450. I know it's chalky, but that'll be a parlay piece for me. A decision win for Joshua Kulabal is plus 400. That's a really good spot. He's got good striking. I can see him landing the bigger, harder punches, maybe less volume, but the more notable punches. I can see him winning on the scorecards. At plus 400, I like that spot. Now Kulabal by TKO is plus 600. It's not a bad spot to consider. He does not have a knockout yet in the UFC, but he has good power in his hands and Sung Woo Choi will trade with him. Now, Sung Woo Choi by TKO is plus 175. I'm not going to play that spot. The books are clearly suggesting that they think he's going to finish the fight at some point. I don't really see that. I think these guys are very evenly matched. I think the fight goes to decision. So I won't play that prop, but I just want to put it out there for you. TKO prop for Sung Woo Choi is plus 175. Not a lot of value there. Now, a round three TKO by Sung Woo Choi is plus 860. Now, why do I like that? I think Joshua Kulabal has a tendency to gas out a little bit towards the end of the fight. Sung Woo Choi has excellent cardio. So maybe late in the fight at some point, the combinations, the volume catches Kulabal and finishes him. The prop I like the most of this fight is the fight starting round two at minus 450. And the second prop I like the most would be the fight with the distance at minus 110. And that's your breakdown, ladies and gentlemen. I like Sung Woo Choi win the fight. I think Kulabal is a live dog, but I got to go with Sung Woo Choi. I think if it's a close fight, he's going to have the advantage. If he lands more punches, he lands more volume, he's going to get the scorecards. The crowd's going to be oohing on for him, cheering him on. Joshua Kulabal, who's from Australia, would be the foreign fighter. It's going to matter. Some of these close fights in the prelim card between two fighters, but one fighter is Asian and one fighter is not. I'm going to definitely side with the Asian fighter. All right, guys, we're on to the next video. Here we go. Next up, we have Brandon Allen from the United States versus Jacob Malcolm from Australia. Now, correction, I said the prior fight was the main event of the prelim card. This should be the main event of the prelim card. So Brandon Allen goes by all in. He's 18 and five overall, three and two in his last five fights. He's currently swelled to a big favorite in the money line of minus 300. He was born in South Carolina, but he's now based out of Louisiana, 26 years old, six foot two in height with a 75 inch reach. He trains out of Rufus Sport Academy. 
Ashram Malcone, who goes by Mamba. He's 6-1 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. He's an underdog here at plus 255 on the main line. He's out of Sydney, Australia, 26 years old, 5'9 in height with a 73-inch reach. He trains at the home gym of Robert Whitaker, so he's got a good gym, good training partners. As for the public votes on Tapology, it appears that Allen is the big favorite, getting 85% of the votes. I agree that Allen should win the fight, but I don't have a lot of confidence in him. I've seen him come up short before. We'll talk about it during the breakdown, but I do like Allen to win the fight, probably by submission. I think later in the fight, like round two, round three. Now, looking at the striking numbers first, for Brandon Allen, landing 4.39 per minute, absorbing 4.59. So good volume output, but not a good ratio. He's slightly negative. As for Malcone, averaging 3.53 per minute, a little less volume, but only absorbing 2.64. So at least he has a positive ratio. For takedown offense, 1.04 per three rounds for Brandon Allen and 6.93 for Malcone. So big advantage of the takedown offense for Malcone, averaging almost seven takedowns per fight. As for takedown defense, 50% for Allen and 0% for Malcone. But Malcone has never had to defend a takedown yet in the UFC. So that's why it's 0%. So when it comes to wrestling, the numbers clearly suggest to you that Malcone wants to wrestle. Now, looking at the fighter profiles for these two fighters, Brandon Allen is from South Carolina. He began BJJ at the age of 13 years old. He did some wrestling and some boxing as well in his teenage years. He's a black belt BJJ. He had a 6-0 amateur record. He went pro 2015. He fought an LFA part of the UFC where he was the middleweight champion. He won a Dana White Contender Series in 2020 via a round one submission to earn his UFC contract. He's a family man. He's got a son and he's married. His last fight was earlier this year against Sam Smiling Alvey. He won via round two rear naked choke. He could have knocked out Alvey. He knocked him down twice in a fight. He knocked him down in round one, knocked him down in round two. After the knockdown in round two, moves in really quickly, gets a submission. Sam Alvey was kind of still buzzed, a little stunned. He tapped out. Sam Alvey is 0-7-1 in his last eight fights. The dude has not won a fight in four years. He was a minus 400 favorite in that fight, and he behaved that way. His prior fight, Chris Curtis, 2021, round two TKO loss. Again, came in as a big favorite, minus 365 on the main line. Curtis is, though, on a seven-fight winning streak, and he's 2-0 in the UFC, and Curtis has won his first UFC fights by KO. So, Allen kind of ran into a buzzsaw there. Still came in as a big favorite. You expected him to do a little better than that fight, and he ended up getting knocked out in round two, which is one of my concerns for Allen. I think he could be a little bit chinny at times. His prior fight, Punahale Soriano, 2021 decision win. He was a pick in that fight, minus 105 on the money line. Soriano is 2-2 two two in the UFC. He more or less just outlasts Soriano. Soriano's not known for very good cardio. After round one, Soriano slowed down quite a bit, and you saw Allen was able to turn on more and get a little more volume and, he, and basically outlast him in that fight. Now, prior to that, Brandon Allen has fought a lot of good names. He fought Sean Strickland, round two TKO loss, 2020. Kyle Dawkins beat him in 2020 by decision. He beat Kevin Holland in 2019 via a round two rear naked choke. So he's fought some very good fighters. Definitely fought some much better competition than his opponent here in this fight, Malcolm. Now, some things I like about Brandon Allen. Number one, very active fighter. This will be a second fight this year. He fought four times last year, which included three mixed martial arts fights and a grappling bout. He fought three times in 2020 and three times in 2019. The guy's averaging literally like three fights a year. He's got very good boxing technique, not the most power, but good technique, good striking, good combinations. And last but not least, very good fighter experience. His topology is much more impressive than his opponent in this matchup. Now, my concerns for Brendan Allen. Number one, he likes to chase submissions, even to the point where he gives a position sometimes. That could be a fatal mistake against a guy like Malcone, who can gain an edge in this fight by getting top control and eating up the clock. For Malcone, he's not amazing at submissions, but he's pretty good at grappling and will look to take the fight to the ground at times and will look to keep top control. So if you've got Allen chasing submissions unsuccessfully, giving up position, that could be a problem for him in the scorecards. He also has limited punching power. I mentioned before, good combinations, good striking technique, good boxing overall, but almost all of his finishes are by submission. Now you have to look way back in his topology, like to his first one or two fights where he actually had a knockout on the feet. All his other KO finishes are like ground and pound finishes. So again, I question his knockout power. He can get a little sloppy at times, especially late in the fight. He starts exchanging with his opponent. He can get clipped. It happened to him against Curtis. He was getting a little tired. Hands were coming down, started exchanging with his opponent, and he got clipped, which led to him losing the fight. His durability might be in question. For example, of the five losses he has, 
He's been finished in three of those losses, and he's been finished twice by TKO in the last two years. There is some evidence there that maybe he does have a little bit of a chin issue. Now, as for the Australian, Jacob Malcone, he had a 2-0 amateur record. He went pro 2017. He's fought some boxing matches along the way. He fought in Eternal MMA and Hex Fight Series, part of the UFC. He signed to the UFC roster in 2020. He lost his UFC debut to Phil Hawes by a knockout in 18 seconds. Not the kind of debut you want to have, but has bounced back since then and done a pretty good job. As for his most recent opponents, he fought AJ Dobson earlier this year, won by decision. He was a minus 105 pick'em, so a nice quality win for him. Prior to that, he fought Abdul Razak Hassan. That was a really quality win for him. He was a plus 240 underdog. And then prior to that, fought Phil Hawes 2020 and, of course, lost that fight in his debut as a plus 185 underdog. So he's fought some pretty good guys, and he's on a two-fight winning streak. The things I like about him, excellent wrestling pressure. If you watch him on film, wrestling is what he hangs his hat on. He has to wrestle in order to win the fight in the scorecards. He averages seven takedowns per fight. That will be part of his game plan. Brandon Allen likes to work from his back, likes to chase submissions, and also has the ability to get back up. So if Malcoon brings him down and doesn't do anything, that might not be enough for him to win in the scorecards. Now my concerns for Malcoon, he has very limited finishing ability. His last three wins have all been by decision. Of his seven wins, only twice has he won by finish. And last but not least, he has much less experience than Brandon Allen. Now Brandon Allen may be a little overhyped in this fight. At minus 300, that's a little bit chalky. He probably should win. I'm not going to bet Brandon Allen straight up. I might put him into one or two degenerate parlays, but I'm not going to bet him straight up. There's a few props here I like better than the money line because I'm a little bit, I guess, shaky. Maybe some recency bias with Brandon Allen losing the way he did against Curtis Allen, but I just don't I just don't know about this guy. Something about him sometimes makes me question his ability to win fights, and if the fight goes longer and Malcoon just maybe catches him with one punch at some point, everything could change. So I just have some question marks here about Brandon Allen. I am choosing him to win, but I'm not going to be backing him straight up as an individual bet. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Malcolm versus Hassan, Malcolm versus Dobson, Allen versus Soriano, Allen versus Curtis, and Allen versus Alvi. To watch any one of those five fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube. In the description, you're going to see those five links available. My final few thoughts on this fight. Brandon Allen has a significant experience advantage. Not only has he fought more fights, has also fought the much better quality of competition. As for fighter IQ, about the same. Both fighters are pretty balanced. We can't misinterpret the experience part and confuse that with fighter IQ. Both guys have pretty good fighter IQ and they're about the same age. As for cardio, both guys check out. In the case of Malcoon, he usually wins by decision anyway, so his cardio is pretty good late in the fight. For finishing ability, a big edge to Brandon Allen. We talked about those numbers already. I think Brandon Allen is a much better finisher in this matchup. For striking, interesting here. I think Brandon Allen is the better technical striker, but Malcoon is the harder puncher. So we'll see how that works out in the scorecards. As for grappling, they're different type of grapplers. For example, Malcoon, he's the better wrestler, averaging about seven takedowns per fight, whereas Allen's averaging only one takedown per fight. But on the ground, who's better at submissions? That's Brandon Allen. So from the grappling standpoint overall, I think Brandon Allen has a slight advantage. I see him getting taken down, working from his back, working on arm triangles, working for arm bars. He will keep Malcoon very busy. So Malcoon, again, is the better wrestler, but Brandon Allen's better at BJJ. The props I like for this fight, the fight not going to decision at minus 200. My thinking is this, either Malcoon somehow cracks Allen, who I wonder about his chin, I mentioned before, I have some questions about his chin, or Allen overwhelms Malcoon and gets a submission on the ground at some point. So at minus 200, I like that spot. That's probably my second favorite spot in this card for a prop bet. The prop bet I like the most is the fight starting round two at minus 300. I don't think the fight goes to full distance, but I think the fight at least gets to round two. At minus 300, that's a very chalky spot, but it could be a parlay piece. A submission win by Brandon Allen, by the way, is plus 150. I'm not betting that spot because the books are telling you they expect that to happen. I kind of expect it too. The better prop would be like round two or round three submission by Brandon Allen, which is like plus 1,000 range. So at plus 150, not going to touch that prop. Decision prop for Brandon Allen, I kind of like that prop at plus 240 and plus 650 for a decision by Jacob Macoon. Look, I don't think the fight goes a distance, but am I shocked if it goes a distance? No, not at all. I could see a world where Jacob Macoon gets some takedowns, 
get some top control, and just grinds up the damn clock. For Brandon Allen, he doesn't mind chasing submissions. He could be on his back for a while. We can see round one, round two go by really quickly. Next thing you know, we're in a round three. But I do think Brandon Allen has an opportunity to submit him, and I think Malcolm will have an opportunity to chin check him. I'll probably have the least amount of action in this fight of all the fights on this card. I think Brandon Allen should win. I'm a little scared in this spot, and now at minus 300, it's starting to swell. Maybe hits like minus 400 by the time the fight comes around. That's a scary spot. Jacob Malkoon is a live dog. I'm not going to bet this fight straight up. I'll choose one or two props. If you're looking for our bets before the fight kicks off, track us on Twitter, track us on BetMVA tips. We have all our betting information there. But in summary, a fight that I don't have a lot of confidence in. Jacob Malkoon is a live dog here, but I'm going to choose Allen to win the fight, most likely by submission. That's the breakdown, guys. Thanks for joining us. Please like and subscribe if you haven't done so already. And we welcome your feedback. We're on to the next fight. The main card for UFC 275 opens up at a welterweight bout between the Australian Jack De La Maddalena versus Ramazan Imev from Russia. Imev goes by Goretz. He's 20 and 5 overall. He's 3 and 2 in his last five fights, 35 years old. Hails out of Dagestan, Russia. He's a slight dog here at plus 140 in the money line. He's 5 foot 10 in height with a 68 and a half inch reach. He trains out of Goritz FT. As for Jack De La Maddalena, he's 11 and 2 overall. 5 and 0 in his last five fights. A slight favorite at minus 160 in the money line. He hails out of Perth, Western Australia, where he's still based out of. 5 11 in height with a 73 inch reach. He trains out of a gym called Scrappy MMA and Fitness in Perth, Australia. As for the striking numbers on these two fighters, Montalana's landing 8.40 per minute, high volume striker, observing 4.95. As for EMF, as to be expected as a Russian fighter from Dagestan, much less volume, landing 2.52 per minute, observing 2.02. So positive striking ratio, but much less volume, which I believe will be a huge factor if the fight goes to decision. Now, as for takedown offense, Emev is landing 2.29 takedowns per fight, zero takedowns per fight for Madalena. For takedown defense, 75% for Madalena and 66% for Emev. Obviously, Emev is going to look to wrestle at some point in the fight. Madalena will either have to get back up or show his takedown defense. Now, looking at the profiles in these two fighters, Mr. Jack De La Madalena was born in Australia. He attended Aquinas College in Perth, Australia. He had a 1-0 amateur record. He made his pro debut in 2016. He began his pro career 0-2 and got finished in his first two fights. Kind of a rough start, right? But they say it's not where you start is where you finish. He's a brown belt in BJJ. He fought in Cage Warriors and Eternal MMA prior to the UFC. He earned his UFC contract via Dana White Contender Series in 2021 via a win over Ang Lusa. Now, Dana White was obviously in attendance at Dana White Contender Series. He really liked the fight a lot. He was very impressed. It went to decision, but it was a back and forth war. So clearly he liked what he saw from the fight and gave the contract to Madalena. His last fight, he fought Pete Rodriguez. It was his UFC debut. It was earlier this year. He got a round one TKO win. He was a minus 400 favorite. Rodriguez was 4-0 coming into the fight, but he was nowhere near the caliber of Madalena. Madalena bullied him on the feet, hurt him with a jab early on, had him bloodied up, and got the finish early in round one. His prior fight against Lusa last year on Deadweight Contender Series got a decision win. He was a minus 125 favorite. Now, Lusa is 0-1 in the UFC and has lost three of his last five fights. So one question you have to have about Madalena is, how does he do against better competition? Is Emev that much of a step up in competition? He is a step up, but how does he do now when he gets tested against better opponents? Now, the thing I do like about Madalena, he's very durable. He's never been finished before. Excellent finish rate himself. Of his 11 wins, 10 are by finish. He fights out of a southpaw stance. That's always an adjustment for the fighter he's going up against. He has an excellent jab. It's not talked about enough. I believe his jab is underrated and that's part of his boxing foundation so in this fight i expect to see that jab early and often he holds a very high guard and does a good job of blocking boxing strikes and his volume is excellent averaging almost nine strikes per minute now my concerns for Mandalena, he has fought very limited competition and Emev will probably be the toughest opponent he's fought in his career. At times he'll have a tendency to get into a brawl. Now in this fight that might help him. I don't believe Emev wants to brawl. If he tries to brawl with Emev, I see Emev actually backing up. In this fight, it should not be an issue. But again, he does like to brawl at times. Now as for the Russian, Ramazan Emev, born in Dagestan. He began wrestling at the age of six years old. He attended Dagestan University. He won the 2009 Dagestan Pancreation Championship and also won a World Combat Sambo title in 2009. He holds the title for International Master of Sports in Sambo. 
He went professional in 2009. He's been a pro for 13 years. He fought M1 part of the UFC. He's the former M1 middleweight champion. He signed to the UFC in 2017. He has a 5-2 overall UFC record. His prior fight, he fought against Danny Roberts, 2021, split decision loss. He was a minus 310 favorite in that fight. So if you were betting on him, ooh, not a good situation. Roberts is a UFC veteran, though. 7-5 overall UFC record, 12 total fights in the UFC. He did secure a takedown in round one and round two against Danny Roberts. But Roberts, being the veteran he is, gets back to the feet. It was a very close fight. It could have gone either way. The problem was, as a minus 310 favorite, it shouldn't have been that close. He ends up coming up on the short side of the stick there. His prior fight, David Zawada, 2021 last year as well. And guess what? Another split decision. This time he gets the win. He was a minus 290 favorite. Another big favorite spot again. Almost 3-1 to one favorite in both those fights. Zawada is no longer with the UFC, and he was 1-4 in the UFC. So putting that into context, that's not a very impressive win. Two more fights to talk about. Nicholas Stoltz, who just fought recently, who's 0-3 in the UFC. They fought in 2020, two years ago, and he won the fight by decision as a minus 410 favorite. So here we go again. Big favorite. You're barely winning the fight by decision over against a guy who has not even had registered to win yet in the UFC. So when you look back at his last few fights, a lot of decision wins, a lot of close decision wins, and no wins over any notable opponents. Now, what is there to like about Emev? He does have extensive professional mixed martial arts experience, both in UFC and outside the UFC, and obviously was a former M1 Global Champion. Has legit wrestling skills. To be expected, he's from Dagestan, been wrestling since he was the age of six years old, former combat Samba World Champion. His wrestling is pretty good. Now, in this matchup, I do think Magdalena will be able to neutralize some of that at times, but you can expect to see Emov getting at least one or two takedowns in this fight. He's also very durable, only to finish twice in his career. That's 25 total mixed martial arts fights, one by submission and one by TKO. Now, my concerns for Emev, he's not a very good finisher. For example, his last eight fights have all gone to decision. So part of his path to victory is depending upon the judges to give him the scores. And he went to split decision in his last two fights. Kind of hard for me to have confidence in betting on someone who's going to split decision that often. And his most impressive UFC win to date is probably over Sam Smiling Alvey. I'm not kidding. That's probably his most impressive win to date. He has just simply not been tested yet in UFC. At 35 years old, he's 10 years older than his opponent. Now, will that be a big factor? I don't think it's going to be a big factor, but it doesn't help him at all. Put it that way. The fights we watched on this film, we watched Emev vs. Robert from last year, Emev vs. Water from last year, Madalena vs. Lusa from last year, and Madalena vs. Rodriguez from earlier this year. If you want to watch any one of those four fights as part of our free video library, just take a look down below here on YouTube, and you're going to see those four links available in the description. My last few thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, i got to give an edge to Emev. He's obviously fought a lot more fights in total, and he's fought more fights in the UFC. The young fighter, Madalena, has shown good fighter IQ thus far. He's a warrior, he's balanced, can fight in the feet, can fight on the ground. As for Ramazan Emev, he's not a bad fighter, he's not a dumb fighter, but he's kind of like a one-trick pony. He's got to wrestle, goes to decision very often, so for fighter IQ, give him about the same rating. For cardio, they both check out. Obviously, in the case of Ramazan Emev, he goes to decision very often, he's got good cardio. Now, when it comes to finishing, not even close. Madalena's a very good finisher, and you got Emev in his last eight fights going to decision. As for striking, another advantage from Madalena. Ramazan Emev is a wrestler. Pitcher, the Dagestani wrestler type. They use some striking to set up takedowns, but Della Madalena has a very good boxing game and has a phenomenal jab. As for grappling, I'm going to give the edge to the Russian fighter Emev. He is a very good grappler, good wrestler, good position control, but Jack Della Madalena, the 10-year younger fighter, is very strong and should be able to work his way back to the feet if the fight gets to the ground. Now, the props I like for this fight, the fight going the distance at minus 175. These guys are pretty evenly matched when it comes to grappling. Could I see a finish? Yes, but again, Emev is a decision monster. He's a veteran of the sport. I can see him stretching this thing out to a decision, and at that point, I see Madalena winning the fight by decision, but I see the fight either way going the distance at minus 175. I like that prop a lot. The prop that I like the most for this fight, though, is the fight starting round three at minus 280. Yes, a slightly chalky spot, but I see the fight at least getting into round three. Got to close round one, round two. There should be some wrestling. There should be some clock getting chewed up, but at minus 280, that could be a parlay piece for you. At plus 275 for Madalena to win by TKO, 
I like that prop. It's something to consider because I can see him overwhelming EMF at some point. Now, a round three TKO win by Magdalena is plus 1600. My thinking there is pretty simple. We get to round three, EMF gets a little bit gassed out, gets a little bit tired, and Magdalena just overpowers him, pressures him, gets on top of him, and starts raining down a bunch of strikes. EMF just covers up, and we got a TKO finish. So I like that prop at plus 1600. Now, either fighter to win by decision, plus 165 for Magdalena and plus 225 for EMF. EMF's most likely path to victory is by decision. If you're going to bet on EMF, the money line has him at plus 140. Not a bad spot, but it's a little better at plus 225. If you're going to bet on EMF, I would urge you to take that prop at plus 225. As for Magdalena, I feel like he's got multiple paths to victory. I can see him winning by decision. I can see him getting a TKO by overwhelming EMF, but most likely by decision. That plus 165 prop is another good spot to look at. But if you like Magdalena that much, just take him at minus 160 in the money line. It's just about pick up money. It's good value. I like Magdalena to win the fight. I'm going to bet him at least a half unit straight up on the money line to win the fight. And the two props will have action on for sure will be the fight starting round three at minus 280 and then the fight going the distance at minus 175 that's your breakdown boys and girls we're on to the next fight here we go Next fight in the card is going to be a flyweight battle between Rogério Bontarin from Brazil and Manal Cop from Portugal. Manal Cop goes by Starboy. He's 17 and 6 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. A favorite on the money line at minus 235. He hails out of Portugal, 28 years old, 5 foot 5 in height with a 68 inch reach. He trains at a VS team. As for Rogério, he's 17 and 4 overall, 2 and 3 in his last five fights. A dog here at plus 190. He hails out of Piranha, Brazil, 30 years old. 5'5 in height with a 67-inch reach. He trains out of Gal Ribeiro team. Only two years apart in age and size and reach-wise almost identical. As for the numbers on topology, it appears that Cop is the public favorite, getting 90% of the votes, only 10% of the public votes coming in for Bontarine. I also like Cop to win the fight. I think he's got the knockout power to finish this fight within a distance, but Bontarine is a good fighter, and he's a live underdog in my opinion. Now, looking at the striking numbers first, for Bontarine landing 2.63 per minute, absorbing 3.27. So not a very high volume striker and has a negative striking ratio. As for Manal Kopp, averaging 4.69 strikes per landed per minute, absorbing 4.59. So a little bit more volume than his opponent here, but not the best striking defense. As for takedown offense, Bontarine's averaging 2.9 takedowns per 15 minutes with a 51% takedown defense. For Cop, averaging 0.77 takedowns per 15 minutes with an 80% takedown defense. Cop will need to use his takedown defense at some point because the numbers suggest that at some point Bontarine will look for a takedown, averaging just about 2.5 takedowns per fight. Looking at the fighter profile for Ruggiero Bontarine, he's from Piranha, Brazil, where he still lives and trains. He actually works on his family farm. He's a black belt BJJ. He began mixed martial arts at the age of 18 years old. He went Pro in 2013, so he's been a professional mixed martial artist for about nine years. He earned his UFC contract in 2018 via the Dana White Contender Series with a round two submission win over Gustavo Gabriel. He fought for Immortal FC, XFC, Brave CF, and Katana prior to the UFC. His last opponent was Brandon Royval, who he lost to last year by split decision. He was a plus 135 underdog. Royval is a very good fighter, not a terrible loss. Again, split decision, one judge thought he won. Prior fight, Matt Schnell, 2021, also last year, won that fight by decision as a plus 140 underdog. He also lost last year to Kaikara France via a round one knockout. He was a minus 145 favorite coming to that fight, just about to pick him. But Kaikara France looking pretty good. It was an early knockout, one of those situations where you kind of chalk it up as a flash knockout and you move on. He fought Ray Borg, 2020, lost that fight by decision. He was a plus 125 underdog in that fight. Now, some things I like about Bontarine. Number one, very good finishing ability. Of his 11 wins, nine by finish, six by submission, and three by TKO. He's a balanced fighter who can find a path to victory both on the feet or on the ground. He's a tremendous grappler with good BJJ skills. In this matchup against Cop, he will have a significant advantage on the ground. Cop is very athletic, so he can use that athleticism at times to maybe get out of some submission opportunities. If the fight's on the ground for too long, there will be a big advantage there for Bontarine. Now, my concerns for Bontarine, he's on a bit of a tough streak. He's lost three of his last four fights. 
He, he has an overall good fighting game, and he's a balanced mixed martial artist. He's not a one-dimensional fighter. He is a balanced mixed martial artist, but he will require his BJJ skills either through a submission or position control to win the fight. As for Manal Cop, he's got dual citizenship in both Angola and Portugal. He's the first Portuguese slash Angolan fighter in the UFC. He went pro in 2012, so been a pro for about 10 years. He fought in Ryzen, cage fighters, and knockout championships prior to the UFC. He's the former Ryzen Bantamweight champion. He first signed to the UFC last year. He's got a 2-2 two two record in the UFC. He's the number 14 ranked flyweight currently in the UFC. His last opponent was Zagas Magulov, who he beat by a round one TKO. He came in as a big favorite at minus 300 and got the job done. Very nice, impressive knockout. His prior fight, Ode Osborne, round one TKO as well with a flying knee as a minus 200 favorite. So his last two fights, very exciting, showing his full potential, dangerous striker. His prior fight before that, 2021, split decision loss to Matthias Nicolau as a minus 120 favorite. A very close fight, could have gone either way. It was his second UFC fight. His first UFC fight, Alexander Pantoja, lost by decision 2021 as a minus 110 pick him favorite. It's my opinion, he learned a lot from those first two fights. He's getting better, making some improvements. So those first two losses, I don't hold that much against him, and they were by decision. Now, some things to like about Manel Kopp. Number one, very good finisher. He's had eight straight wins by finish, seven by TKO, and one by submissions. So clearly, he's a lethal striker. He's very athletic and very quick. He should have the quickness advantage in this matchup. He's not known for his wrestling, but his wrestling is pretty good, and especially his wrestling defense. So when Bonsreen attempts to take him down at some point in the fight, he should have good enough takedown defense to deny most of those takedowns. He's not a very high volume striker and at times can get caught looking for the perfect punch, but the stats don't lie. He's averaging almost twice the amount of strikes compared to Bonsarine. Now my concerns for Cop, he has not met his full potential. He's still that kind of fighter where you're looking at him as a guy who has the potential, knockout power, very athletic, but hasn't put it all together. This would be his biggest win of his UFC career because Bonsarine is ranked number eight in the division. He could possibly catapult himself to the top 10. And my last critique of him is sometimes he gets caught looking for the perfect shot. He needs to keep his volume going, let his hands go, the fights we watched every day on this film, we watched Bonsarine vs. Kaikara France from last year, Bonsarine vs. Snell from last year, and Bonsarine vs. Roy Val from last year. We watched Kopp vs. Nikolaou, Kopp vs. Osborne, and Kopp vs. Magulov. All of those six fights from these two fighters were all last year. These guys are very active fighters. If you want to watch any one of those six fights, they're available as part of our free video library. If you just look down below on YouTube in our description, you'll see those six links available. My final few thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise and fighter IQ, very similar. They both fought about the same quality of opponent, same amount of fights, and about the same age. As for cardio, neither guy has an advantage in that department. They both have finishing ability. I believe the fight does not go the distance. There'll be some violence at some point, either Bonsarine getting a submission or Kopp getting a TKO. So when it comes to finishing ability, I'm not sure either fighter has an edge there. Who's the better striker? I think Cop has an advantage there. One, because of more volume, but number two has more striking power. For Bonsarine, his advantage will be on the ground. He's the better overall grappler. Now, Cop has pretty good takedown defense, and he's very athletic, but Bonsarine clearly has the edge when it comes to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and he will attempt at least a few submissions in this fight. The props I like for this fight, the fight does not go the distance. It's minus 190. That's probably my favorite prop. The submission prop for Bonsarine is plus 500. I'm going to definitely play that prop. A round two submission win for Bonsarine is plus 1,400. I'm going to probably play the round two submission win for Bonsarine and round three submission win for Bonsarine. My thinking is that the fight goes on and Cop gets a little tired, maybe round two, round three, Bonsarine can get the best of him, catch Cop making a mistake. Now, the decision prop win for Bonsarine is plus 550. I like that because the reality is if it's a close fight, there's some grappling going on. Bonsarine gets some back control, maybe gets a body triangle, wastes a round or two that way, wins by decision at plus 550, survives the full distance. I can see that. I'm also going to play that prop as well. Now, the TKO prop for Cop is plus 130. Not a ton of value there. The bookies know he's most likely to end the fight by TKO. I'm not going to play that prop, but it is a likely scenario. Now, starting round two is minus 350. I like that prop. I'm going to play that as a parlay piece. My thinking is simply this. If Cop 
gets out there in round one, measures distance, takes his time, doesn't get too overzealous, bombs where he gets some clinch control time. Next thing you know, we're into round two. I like that spot for a prop. Round one TKO finish for Cop at plus 360. Now that's the TKO prop I do like for Cop because my thinking is this, he comes out in round one, measures distance a little bit, and then once he finds the opportunity, he unloads and catches Pontarine with one shot. All it takes is one shot from Cop. He has a lot of power, much more punching power than his opponent here, Bontarine. Regardless, I think this fight does not go the full distance, and that's probably my favorite prop here. The minus 190 spot for the fight, not going to decision. It's a big fight in the main card. You get the number eight Bontarine versus the number 14 Cop. I'm excited to see this fight. I hope Cop can meet his potential, but could Bontarine come in here as a plus 180 underdog and win? Absolutely, probably by submission. Take a look at that prop if you haven't done so already. That's the breakdown, guys. Let's move on to the next video. Here we go. Next up, we have a women's bout in the strawweight division at 115 pounds between Wally Zhang, former champion, versus Joanna Jajetic. That last name always gets me. These are both former champions squaring off here. Joanna's coming off of about a two-year layoff, so she's back in the octagon. We'll talk about her profile. We'll talk about her background, her new business ventures. As for Wally Zhang, who recently lost to Rose Namajunas twice last year and also lost her title, she's looking to get back on track after a very long winning streak. Wally Zhang goes by Magnum. She's 21-3 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights. She's currently a slight favorite in the money line at minus 165. She's based out of China, 32 years old, 5'4 in height with a 63-inch reach. She trains at a Black Tiger Fight Club. As for Joanna, 16-4 overall, plus 140 underdog. She's from Poland, but now based out of Coconut Creek, Florida, 34 years old, 5'6 in height with a 65.5-inch reach, and she trains out of American Top Team. Now, looking at the public votes on Tapology, it appears Zhang is the big favorite, getting 61% of the votes. I do agree. I like Wally Zhang to win the fight. My biggest concern for Joanna, and she's a former champion, very good fighter, is the retirement slash two-year break. It's hard to like re-engage, you know, two years is a long layoff. They're both getting older. I think Wally Zhang's been a lot more active and that will give her the edge in this fight, not to mention the home court advantage. But if you do like Joanna to win the fight, if you think she comes in here and can expose Wally Zhang, I can't argue with you. I do like Joanna a lot. She's got a chance to win this fight, but I think this fight is a perfect matchup here for Wally Zhang. All right, now looking at the striking numbers in these two fighters, Wally Zhang is averaging 5.47 strikes landed per minute, absorbing 4.13. Pretty good output, high volume and a positive ratio. As for Joanna, landing a little bit more, 6.3 per minute, absorbing 3.08. So landing more strikes with the better ratio. As for takedown offense, Wally Zhang's averaging 1.75 takedowns per 15 minutes and defending takedowns at a 60% rate. For Joanna, much more of a stand-up fighter, averaging only 0.28 takedowns per 15 minutes with an 81% takedown defense. Okay, now, looking at the fighter profile for Wally Zhang. She was born in China. She began Kung Fu at the age of six years old. She evolved to include Sanda. Now, Sanda is the Chinese version of wrestling. So just imagine this. As a young kid, she's doing Kung Fu, and then she starts to incorporate wrestling. She won several Sanda championships in her province, but due to some serious back injuries, she had to stop wrestling at the age of 17. So at 17 years old, she moves to Beijing, the big city, starts teaching, takes a job as a hotel desk clerk. Uh, she's working at a security guard, just a bunch of odd jobs. Ends up getting a job at a fitness gym where she meets some people that know about a mixed martial arts gym. And next thing you know, she finds herself in a mixed martial arts gym and she now starts training mixed martial arts. So that's how she found mixed martial arts. She made her pro debut in 2013. She's a former KLF strawweight champion. She signed to the UFC in 2018. She's the first ever Chinese champion in the UFC, men or women, the first and only Chinese champion. She is currently the number two ranked strawweight in the UFC. She started her career 0-2 actually with a mixed martial arts loss and a kickboxing loss. In 2020, she became the official brand ambassador for Estee Lauder in China. The last time these two ladies fought, they earned fight of the year. Not just by the night, it was fight of the year. She's also earned performance of the night against Jessica Andrade. And last year, of course, she lost her belt to Rose Namajunas. She gets knocked out round one, a little controversial, but she got knocked out, head kick, loses the belt. 
They have a rematch. In the rematch, very close, goes to split decision, and she loses the fight again. So she loses the belt in back-to-back losses to Rose, who Rose obviously just lost the belt to Carla Esparza. Along with fighting Rose twice last year, she fought Joanna in 2020, got a split decision win as a minus-195 favorite, and of course, that was the fight of the year. She defeated Jessica Drage in 2020, round one TKO win as a plus-130 underdog, and she also had to win over Tisha Torres in 2019 via decision. Now, the things to like about Wally Zhang, she had a 21-fight winning streak before she ran into Rose Namajunas. She has excellent finishing power, especially for this division. She finished five of her last eight wins. She obviously has championship-level experience and has fought in the championship-level rounds. She's powerful on the feet, a very balanced fighter, but also very effective on the ground. If the fight gets to the ground for any kind of significant amount of time, she should have the power, strength advantage, and will probably be in position control. Now, my concerns for Wally Zhang, her striking defense, not the greatest. That's kind of why she got kicked in the face by Rose Namunis when they first fought. She needs to get her hands up a little bit more, needs to shore up her guard. Her striking is good. I do think Joanna will have a small advantage, though, in that area. She's got power, maybe even more power than Joanna, but when it comes to actually just striking technique and good boxing skills and defense, she lacks in some of those areas. Against Rose Namajunas, she tried to close distance. She tried to wrestle and grapple more. She couldn't pull it off. That's another concern for me. Can she close distance enough? Will she stick to the game plan of closing distance and grappling? Joanna's got good footwork. She'll look to move and circle, but can she cut the cage off and actually get to a grappling situation? And last but not least, the elephant in the room is she's coming off of back-to-back losses. If she loses this fight, she's going to be 0-3 in her last three fights. Kind of a hard thing to picture, but the reality is that is a possibility. Now, is the back-to-back losses a fluke thing? Did she win the last fight against Rose? I mean, it was very close. The first fight, a knockout, or maybe is she showing signs of deterioration? She is 34. We mentioned before the business ventures, top of her career. Is she having like the Conor McGregor effect where you get to that mountaintop, you get the money, the fame, the power, and you're just not training as hard anymore. You get finished a few times. I'm not saying that's where she's at right now, but what if she loses this fight? Wow, dropping three in a row, losing your belt. The public will have a whole different opinion on her if she were to lose this fight. As for Joanna, she's a blue belt in BJJ, started training Muay Thai at the age of 16 years old. She competed in Muay Thai tournaments for roughly 10 years with about 60 total matches. She won five Muay Thai world titles under WKN. She was 2-0 as an amateur. She went pro in 2012. She's the former UFC strawweight champion. She lost her belt to Rose Namajunas in 2017. She's the first Polish-born UFC champion, men or women. So both ladies here have the distinction of being the first champion from their respective country, and they happen to be women. She had five successful title defenses. She has the most UFC wins in strawweight history with 10. She's got the most leg kicks in a UFC fight in history with 78 against Waterson. She's tied with Amanda Nunes for the most title fights in UFC women's history with 10. You got to remind yourself, like, she's very established, one of the best of all time, a future UFC Hall of Famer. Now, her most recent opponent, she fought Wally Zhang two years ago, her last fight, lost the fight by split decision as a plus 165 underdog. Split decision, that's the key word. Championship fight, five rounds. So you're talking about a fight where it could have gone either way. This fight will also be very close as well. She fought Michelle Waterson, 2019, as a minus 340 favorite, got the win there. She also fought Valentina Shevchenko, 2018 decision loss as an underdog in that fight. Going the distance with Valentina is is not such a bad thing. Prior to fighting Shevchenko, she fought Rose Namajunas twice. The first time in 2017, she was a minus 700 favorite, and Rose was a plus 500 favorite. This reminds me of the Holly Holm fight against Ronda Rousey. This reminds me of the fight last year with Amanda Nunes when she lost her title. These women champions get to a point where the money lines are like wild. So this is an example of that. Rose came into that fight 
as a plus 500 underdog. You got Joanna as a minus 700 favorite, and Joanna gets knocked out in round one. She loses her title, then they do a rematch 2018, and she loses again to Rose by decision. Now, the things I like about Joanna's game, number one, she has championship level pedigree, has fought in championship level rounds, has amazing cardio, has the veteran experience. And hopefully during this two-year layoff, she's gotten healthy, remained injury-free, had the best training possible, and marrying that with her veteran savvy should be in a situation here to come out and give a good performance. Now, my concerns for Joanna, number one, she's coming off of a two-year layoff, and she's approaching the age of 35. A two-year layoff can do different things to different fighters. For some fighters, it reinvigorates them. They get excited. They want to come back in the cage. They have a good training camp. They're back. They're fresh. They're healthy. For other fighters, they get the taste of retirement, not getting the punishment of the training, not getting the bruising and the beating, not having your body sore in the mornings after training, and they start getting a taste of that life. And when they go back to training, it's not really the way it used to be. They're not fully into it the way it used to be. Now, she did an interview recently where she talked about some of her new business ventures, and she's a very successful businesswoman outside the octagon. It sounded to me like an interview that she's very committed to those business ventures and that this is like a nostalgia moment. Going back into the cage, she talked about sitting down with Dana White in UFC and negotiating the contracts and wanting more money. And to me, this seems like a fight where she's coming back to get a good paycheck, to give the UFC a good show. I think we see a shell of Joanna, guys. I think we don't see the Joanna of old. I think we see a good version of Joanna, not the championship version. She'll do a few good things here and there, but I think the volume is not going to be the same. I think Wally Zhang will be much sharper. I think her cage IQ at this point may be a little sharper because she's fighting much more often. And I think if the fight goes to round four or five, there may even be some cardio issues for Joanna, which we've never seen before. But I think Wally Zhang has all the advantages here, not to mention she's fighting in Singapore in front of a home crowd. The fights we watched every down this film, we watched Joanna versus Watterson in 2019, Joanna versus Shevchenko from 2018, Joanna's last fight versus Zhang in 2020, and then we obviously watched the two fights of Wally Zhang versus Nami Yunus from last year. If you want to watch any one of those five fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube. In the description, you're going to see those five links available for those five fights. My final few thoughts on these two fighters, I think this fight probably goes the distance. It is a five-round fight. Wally Zhang will probably do some more damage on the feet. Joanna will probably show some more damage on her face, but I would look at the prop of the fight with the distance. I don't have that in front of me, but that'd be a prop that I would look at. And now, if there's a finishing prop I would look at, I'd look at Wally Zhang by TKO late in the fight, like round four, round five because of the wear and tear over the course of the fight. And so I can see a late finish by Wally Zhang. The fight starting around three prop or the fight starting around four prop will be a little bit chalky, but could be a parlay piece. That's the breakdown, boys and girls. I like Wally Zhang to win the fight. At minus 165, I'll be taking a sprinkle of that. Not sure how much I'm going to bet. Maybe a half unit at the most. Not going to parlay it. I don't have that much confidence. If I parlay any part of this fight, it would be the fight starting around three or the fight starting around four. All right, guys, moving on up the card. Here we go. And we are now up to the co-main event for UFC 275. We've got the champion, Valentina Shevchenko, defending her belt against Talis Santos from Brazil. Santos is 19-1 overall, 4-1 her last five fights. Shevchenko is 22-3 overall, and 5-0 her last five fights. And of course, Shevchenko is the champion, blazing a path right now. Everyone knows who she is. We get these female fighters who become champions in their respective divisions. People think they cannot be beat. The money lines get juicier and juicier. Now we have Valentina at minus 630, big-time favorite, against a fighter who's actually got a legit chance to beat her. At some point, Shevchenko will lose. Just like at some point, Ronda Rousey lost. Ronda Rousey, when she went into the fight against Holly Holm, Holly Holm was a plus 850 underdog. Holly Holmes obviously beat her, knocked her out. And from that point on, we saw Ronda Rousey was a little bit overrated. Amanda Nunes, people thought she could never lose. Never, ever, ever lose. And Peña caught her last year. Amanda Nunes, again, was a huge favorite. At some point, Shevchenko's going to be like a minus 630, minus 700, minus 1,000 favorite, and she's going to lose too. And Tala Santos could be that loss. I'm taking Tala Santos to win the fight, and here's how she's going to do it. Over the course of five rounds, if it goes the full five rounds, I think she's the stronger fighter, like physically stronger. 
She's going to land a few punches. I'm not surprised if she even hurts Shevchenko. You could also argue over the course of five rounds that Valentina Shevchenko is the better striker, more volume, a little more precision, and will land more punches. But I think Santos is the more powerful striker. She has more innate power. Watch her on film. She's built. She's a strong girl from Brazil. No joke. Not to mention she's 28 years old. Shevchenko is 34 years old. She's at her peak at this point. She's not going to get any better, any faster, any quicker, any more athletic, any stronger after 34 years old. Just not going to happen. Now, she could fine-tune her game, improve her fighter IQ, but she's not going to get faster, not going to get stronger, not going to get quicker. That's just a reality. That's just Mother Nature for you. Talos Santos is jacked. Very strong. 28 years old. From Brazil. This is a great matchup for Santos. Now, has Santos fought the caliber of fighters Valentina has? No. Valentina's a champion for a reason. She trains ferociously. She's called the bullet for a reason. She's lethal. She's good everywhere. Good in the ground, good in the feet. But at minus 630, can you really bet that? Can you really bet minus 630? People say, oh, well, I'll parlay it. Really? You're going you're gonna to parlay that? And what will it do for your parlay? How, how much value will that add to your parlay at a minus 600 spot? You really can't bet Shevchenko in this fight. Now, you could find a prop bet. You could find Shevchenko winning the fight by TKO, or Shevchenko winning in a certain round, or Shevchenko by decision. But to me, this is more simple than that. It's a dog or pass. Watch the fight. You could root for whoever you want to root for. Shevchenko probably wins the fight. That's fine. There's just no value there from a betting perspective. Again, you could find the right prop. If you know how she wins the fight by submission, what round, maybe the fight starting like round three or starting round four, that prop. I like those kind of props where the fight starts a certain round. But I like Santos in this spot. I'm going to bet on Santos, probably somewhere around a quarter unit to a half unit straight up. I'm not going to bet on Shevchenko. She probably wins the fight. She's probably and still champion. But this fight right here features a very live underdog who's being completely overlooked. And it reminds me a lot of Pena last year. It reminds me a lot of Holly Holm when she fought Ronda Rousey. So that's the breakdown, guys. I want to make sure I double down on this. I'm picking Santos. I'm betting on Santos to win the fight. I think she upset Shevchenko here. Now, Shevchenko, she could win. Of course, she's a champion. I, I wouldn't be surprised if she wins. But Santos is a strong gal. Shevchenko will definitely have her hands full with her. So again, I like Santos to win the fight. That's the breakdown, guys. Okay, we're up to the main event. We've got Glover Teixeira, the champion, defending his belt against Yuri Prizhashka, the up-and-coming prospect. Teixeira is 33-7 and overall. Old man at 42. He's a slight dog here, though, at plus 170 in the money line. Kind of interesting. A champion is a slight underdog. He's 6'2 in height with a 76-inch reach. He trains out of Teixeira MMA and Fitness, which is up in the Northeast United States. As for Prizhashka, who goes by Denisa, he's 28-3-1 overall. He's a favorite here at minus 200 in the money line. He hails out of Czech Republic, 29 years old, so 13 years younger than his opponent. Six foot three in height with an 80 inch reach, so Yuri will have a height and reach advantage. If you look on Tapology, Yuri trained out of Jetsam Jim Bruno, but I believe he changed Jim to some training over the United States. I'm just not sure what Jim. Now, as for Tapology, it looks like Prajaka is the favorite, and he's 65% of the votes, only 35% coming in for Teixeira. I like Teixeira. I'm on the dogs in the main card. Here's my thing this fight either goes one of two ways. Either Teixeira submits him, takes him down, and submits him. Maybe even clips him, because sometimes on the feet, Yuri gets a little bit sloppy, or Yuri just knocks him out. It's going to go one of those two ways. The best spot to bet in this fight is the fight just simply does not go to decision, or does not even start round five. These two guys at some point are going to finish one another. And look, when it comes to Yuri Prizhashka, I would encourage you, watch his prior film. There's some highs, there's some lows, there's some points where you're like, Ugh. there's some points where he's getting clipped and then comes back and wins. He's an exciting fighter. The guy's got this very like unique quality. It's like Far East, martial arts, Kung Fu. His videos on Twitter are kind of like unique shit of him training in some weird ways with swords. And he probably thinks of himself as some kind of like a samurai from the old ages. Anyway, he's a very unique fighter, good striking skills, has the range in this fight. 
But should he be contending for a title at this point in his career? I don't think so. The UFC is like high on this guy. It was just like the other day he was just a prospect in the UFC and now he's fighting for a title. I think Glover Teixeira has more than a chance here to defend his title. If he grapples Prashashka, if he gets him to the ground, it's lights out. I like to share to win the fight. As plus money for a champion defending his belt, I'm taking that all day, every day. The best props to look at in the fight again does not go the distance. To share it by submission, I like Prajashka as a future prospect, but this is too big too soon. As for Teixeira, he's like 42 years old, very old, but he still has grown man strength. He's very good at BJJ, has a great training environment, a lot of good fighters in his gym in Massachusetts. I think Teixeira pulls it off again at 42 years old and still champion. That's your breakdown, boys and girls. Okay, guys, we're at the end of the episode here. I'm going to give you a summary of our picks to win, start from the top. We like Glover Teixeira in the main event, Talas Santos in the co-main event, Wally Zhang, Manel Kopp, Jack Della Maddalena, Brittany Allen, Sungwoo Choi, Hayasar Mahashete, Andre Fialo, Bakaral Dana, Na Liang, and Ramona Pasquale. Now, the picks that we like the most, the ones we have the most confidence in, the first fight in the car, believe it or not, Ramona Pasquale is underdog at plus 150. I think this fight is hers to win. I like her in that spot a lot. On the prelim card, I also like Andre Fiala at minus 150 and Dana Baccarat at minus 150. The two spots I like the most on the main card would be Manel Kopp at minus 235 and Jack De La Magdalena at minus 160. All right, guys, that's the full card breakdown for you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe, and we'll see you guys soon. Deuces.